have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. shortages, supply chain breakdowns continue to have a domino effect on everything, especially food production. Farmers can't plant as many crops now because of fertilizer shortages, forced regulations, and of course, high fuel prices. This will cause more painful food shortages when we run out of the food we're eating now. You know, food takes time to grow. So when farmers don't plant, well, months later, we don't eat. That's why you need to prepare for an increasing number of food shortages. And the best way is to invest in ready-hour emergency food from My Patriot Supply. It's a perfect hedge against skyrocketing prices and shortages. Right now, save $50 on a four-week food kit from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and get your $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's preparewithsouthernsense.com. Those who know what's coming are getting prepared now. Well, if you don't want to type in that whole big thing saying preparewithsouthernsense.com and you're on my website, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense, as in commonsense.com, you can easily click on My Patriot Supply and go directly to the website and get your $50 savings. As I'm telling you now, those who know what's coming are getting prepared right now. Shouldn't you? Prepare with southern-sense.com. That's 
southern-sense.com. Click on My Patriot Supply. Do it now. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Yes, we're back up on YouTube. Um, now I've got where I was. iHeartRadio, Global Enlightenment Radio. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. You can watch us there live. You can listen to us live. You can listen to the archives. Ah, just go on over and enjoy. want to welcome everyone that is here in the... Oops. Oh, more, more importantly than welcoming everyone, I'm your hostess with the, the wackiest, mostest, Annie, the radio chickadee, along with my co-host, Curtis, <laughs> crazy Curtis Bennett. Yes, Bennett. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I was starting to say, welcome everyone that's listening here on Blog Talk Radio in our chat room, and those that are now going to um, YouTube and Facebook, uh, just Key in on Facebook, just the name of the show, Southern Sense, no dash, nothing or anything like that. Um, and then you can find us up there. And I've got my computer's acting up. Uh, well, I'll play with that later. I don't know why I can't get that to go. Anyway, we're up and running. We've got ourselves a really, really great lineup here today. We're going to start off with my friend, Lucretia Hughes. Uh, you find her up on Facebook at Real News with Lucretia Hughes. And she and her husband have a um, company called Fallback Production Studio, which is really great. We're going to be talking to her about that. We've got a candidate for Congress uh, for New Jersey uh, District 12, Darius Mayfield. He'll be joining us. And the guest we tried to get last week, Har- Harlan Ullman. Uh He's the author of the new book, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad. The number works. He will be joining us. We'll make sure of that one. Uh, Derek Kenny, uh, Kenny, uh, Derek Kinney is going to be joining us. He's the author of Good Money Revolution, How to Make More Money, Do More Good. He's also the CEO of Good Money Framework, and he also hosts a very popular podcast called Good Money. Uh, we've got from Heritage Foundation, Doug Blair. He's the news producer for The Daily Signal over at Heritage Foundation. So we got ourselves a jam-up show today. We're going to be really busy, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Yes, we do. And... um I am looking forward to each and every one of them. Yeah. And those that want to know, we are booked solid for next week. Um, You know this name, Paul Manafort. He's going to start off the show next week. Um, Adam, and I always mess up his last name, Andrew Juski, he has opened the books. We've been talking with Mark Tapscott on some of the investigations. He broke open what was going over at the CDC and NIH and the money kickbacks, the doctors, he's been uh, opening up a lot of cans and worms that the Democrats are not too happy about. But we'll be talking to him. Uh, then we have my friend A.J. Rice. Now, if you ever want to know where I get all my great uh, guests from, A.J. is the gent that sends them over to me. He's got a new book out, The Woking Dead. Oh, it's a good, good book. And Mark Tapscott from the uh, Epic Times will be joining us again next week, along with a guest from the Heritage Foundation, as usual. So, busy today and already lining up for next week and into the future. (sighs) Oh, my goodness. I said that all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So, that's what we have ongoing. Um, 
there have been primaries going on all across the nation, and so far Trump is batting a thousand. And speaking of Trump, we're going to be discussing Mar-a-Lago, the Mar-a-Lago raid. That's going to be a huge topic today, along with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, another version of the Build Back Better of Biden. I call it Build Back Bitter. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. I, I, anything this administration does no longer amazes me. It's just it's just how stupid can they get? Just when you think they've hit rock bottom, they go even further. Oh my and even goodness. even when they come up with these names like the Affordable Care Act, it's really the opposite of that. <laughs> the Unaffordable Care Act. Yeah. Oh. Man, just like this new bill they came out with. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jeff. Well, they reduced, they're reducing inflation. They're reducing it to a full-blown recession. <laughs> so we're going down, folks. We're going down for the count. Anyway, with that said, um, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Dominic M. Francis of Bluffton Police Department in Ohio. His end of watch was Thursday, March 31st of this year. And there wasn't a lot that I could find written up, so I pieced some things together from the Officer Down Memorial page, from uh, Canton, the Canton Rep., and from Fox 8, uh, Fox 8 News. And this reads, Police Officer Dominic Francis was struck and killed by a vehicle while deploying spike strips near mile marker 142 on southbound I-75 at around 2.30 a.m. Troopers with the Ohio State Highway Patrol had started pursuing the vehicle on State Route 15 after attempting a traffic stop. The vehicle fled onto I-75 and reached speeds exceeding 130 miles per hour before striking Officer Francis. Three occupants of the vehicle then fled the scene on foot. All three were taken into custody over the next 10 hours. Officer Francis had served in law enforcement for 19 years. He was survived by his wife, son, and daughter. This is the obituary for Dominic M. Dom Francis. Dominic M. Dom Francis, 42, was killed in the line of duty on Thursday, March 31st, 2022, near Bluffton, Ohio. He was born in Bluffton on August 9th, 1979, to Robert and Vicki Francis. Dom graduated from the Corey Rawson High School in 1998 and then the University of Findlay in 2002, where he played football. He married Ricky Davis and had a son, Blake Francis of Van Buren, and daughter, Taylor, born of Tiffin, a sister, Chase, of Mount Corey, and paternal grandparents, Maryland Francis of Bluffton, and numerous nieces, nephews, and extended family. He was preceded in death by his paternal grandparents, Junior LaDonna Ratcher. 
and from Fox 8 News by Talia Nequin, Chris Bell, and Dave Nethers. Dominic Dom Francis was honored by thousands before being laid to rest in the community where he was born and raised. The Bluffton police officer was killed when he was putting down stop sticks during a pursuit on March 31 on I-75. He was hit by a car of fleeing suspects and died from his injuries. Several thousand people attended services at Bluffton University's Summer Center that Friday. Francis was awarded a Medal of Honor and Purple Heart for his ultimate sacrifice. It was presented to his wife during the ceremony. Close friend and fellow law enforcement officer Amanda Miller, who met Francis in 2016, spoke about the great impact he had had on her. If you met me, I hope I identify what Dominic is, Miller said. He was driven. He was full of energy and, yes, as you've already heard, full of service. She said she cherishes the bond created in their service together, like when they helped to reunite a family with a lost child and even corralled livestock. She wanted people to know he was a very funny guy, saying sarcasm was his second language. Miller explained the many roles he took on throughout his career, calling him Dominic the Peacemaker. She said he built many friendships with deputies during the countless hours of ride-alongs, all with the memories to share. I quickly learned what it is to be a service person through Dominic, she said. Through tears, there was no such words as no. If someone asked, it was a yes. Following the funeral, loved ones and fellow officers made up the motorcade, leading to the Climber Cemetery in Mount Corey, his final resting place. He served on the Findlay Police Department and the Hancock County Sheriff's Office before joining the Bluffton Police Department. He was a Bluffton officer for 11 years. Francis was awarded Officer of the Year Award twice multiple letters of commendation, the Chief's Leadership Award, and a Bluffton Police Department Life-Saving Award, and was honored by Mothers Against Drunk Drivers as top cop. Francis also served as a captain for the Southwestern Hancock Joint Fire District for several years. He earned the Ohio EMS Star of Life multiple times. This community lost a hero. His heart was big. He was a teacher. He was a bus driver. He was a coach to the youth in this community. He had a heart of gold, said Bluffton Police Chief Ryan Burkholder. Francis was very active with the Corey Rossum High School, where he was a strength and conditioning coach, football coach, substitute teacher, and bus driver. According to his obituary, when he wasn't working one of the many jobs, he enjoyed spending time with his family and friends at Indian Lake and driving his boat. Fort Finley Fraternal Order Police Lodge is handling donations for Officer Francis's family. You can donate to a memorial fund there. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Francis. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this wonderful nation 
through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate to each and every one this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Seven Sons on Blog Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Yes, back up on YouTube. Yay! Ah, uh, <laughs> SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iHeart Radio. Oh, half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm the hostess that's getting the most is back together again. Annie, the radio chick, Cubellus, along with by Curtis. C.S. Bennett, co-host, who's scratching his head going, what is she going to say next? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, We've got ourselves, like I said, a rocking show going on. But the the big talk today is this raid at Mar-a-Lago. And, oh, man, the information and the uh, stuff that's coming out, they made a huge, huge mistake. When you get something like... 71% 71% in a recent poll said that this was not a favorable outlook for the FBI. And Merrick Garland took to the microphone yesterday, said a lot of words, but didn't say much of anything, if you know what I mean. But he did own up to the fact that he's the one who ordered the raid. question is, is he taking the bullet for Biden or whoever's pulling Biden's strings, <clears throat> Obama, um, is he taking the bullet for someone else? Good question, isn't it? Well, I believe it's more like this. there's a lot of pressure on him by um, the hierarchy and the left to do something because they tasked him with going after Trump. And uh, I don't think they felt he was really, um, really uh, motivated to go after him because he knows he really had no legal standing. But to show them that, you know, uh, or to get them off his back, he, um, you know, ordered this raid. And I think it's just to um, get the the pressure off of him. Well, there's a lot of things that went wrong on this one. Now, number one, someone originally asserted that the attorney was able to view everything that they were taking. No. The attorney was shown the subpoena from 10 feet away. Now, tell me, how are you going to read a legal document from 10 feet away? Now, all she saw was a piece of paper being waved in the air at her. She wasn't allowed to observe anything that they took out of the house. She was not given a receipt. Whenever you remove an item, you must give a receipt, an itemized receipt of everything you removed. It has to be photographed and documented to prove that that is what you took and to show that you didn't plant any of this evidence. And the attorney is allowed to observe to see that you're not planting anything. They don't even know if they planted bugs in the place. Now, on top of that, Representative um, Perry, uh, he was with his family at the airport heading for a vacation. They accosted him at the airport and made him give up his personal cell phone. No subpoena, no warrant. They forced him to give up his cell phone. Now, this is a sitting member of Congress. This is the executive branch violating a legislative branch member, a sitting congressional member, their constitutional rights. He did get the phone back. That was only after they cloned the phone. 
Lord knows what they're going to pull out of there. An innocent conversation suddenly gets distorted into something untoward. And they were looking for information on January 6th because he may have had conversations with the president. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't record my phone calls. You can see who I called. That's it. But what is said? No. The only time I will record a phone call if it's something extremely important or harassing. And then, then yeah, I'll hit the record. I do have that feature on my phone, but 99.99999% of the times, I don't. I don't. But text messages, phone numbers, contacts, who else are they going to go after who happened to be on his phone list? This is the FBI going beyond their powers and violating the First and Fourth Amendment of the Constitution against Donald Trump. I mean, they even went through Melania's wardrobe. What were they doing? Sniffing her panties? Seeing if she wears, you know, stockings with the garter belt or pantyhose? What what would her clothing have to do with the January 6th documents or classified information? And furthermore, the boxes that were packed were not personally packed by Donald Trump. They were packed by staffers. So he may have not even have an idea. He may have looked at an inventory list and said, all right, fine, you know, whatever, or have someone else go over the inventory list of the boxes, if there is an inventory list. Or this was... The uh... boxes were put in a sealed room. They asked him to put a lock on the door to prevent anyone from entering or exiting without his knowledge. So instead of saying, all right, fine, we need to get into the room to get those boxes, and he could have arranged it with the attorney, attorney show up, unlock the door, go ahead, take whatever you want. No, they break the lock in this search. They knew the boxes were secure behind a locked door, and they were already in negotiations with Trump and his attorneys, an ongoing uh, negotiation, which he has been turning over materials throughout this negotiation. There was no need for this search warrant. If anything, it would have been a subpoena, and if you violated the subpoena, at that point, maybe a judge would grant a search warrant. Oh, but wait. Now here's the kicker. The judge that issued the search warrant had direct ties to Epstein. He defended the employees and friends of Epstein. Gee, you think the deep state's behind this? Well, I think it's possible whatever they're looking for, they could have planted it when um, Trump mm-hmm. was moving from the White House, and they knew it was there all along, and they would come, you know, make a big deal out of it at a later date, that being this week. You know, like you said, Trump didn't personally pack his um, materials and, and um, his documents. He has staffers do it, and somebody could have slipped in there something, or they could have done it once they got there. Um, yeah, well, there, so well, they could have planned usually, something. Usually something like this where the staffers, they would have a li- an inventory list, which someone then would probably review and sign off on. So if something was slipped in, then it would be also on that inventory list. Now, you don't keep the inventory list with the box. Well, you, you keep a copy with the box, but the actual inventory list would be filed somewhere else. Maybe that's what they were looking for, the second list. I don't know. I'm this just, is, I'm just. This is all shady. 
real shady. Mm. Slim shady. <laughs> yep. But we will be talking, and your friend should be calling in any moment. Our, actually, I should say our friend, because I met her at yeah. one of the Tea Party Coalition conventions. And she just lives right yeah. across the state line. I don't know why the two of us don't get together. But we both are <laughs> busy, busy, busy schedules. Cash but the New, York Post, the New York Post has a great uh, timeline up on it. So if you go to New York Post, they posted this up uh, yesterday. And it just, just uh, the name of the article is Trump Raid Timeline. And, you know, they started the negotiations. Well, he left the White House on January 20th, approximately four hours before Joe Biden's swearing in. And dozens of boxes containing documents, mementos, and other materials had gone ahead of him to his post-presidential home at Mar-a-Lago. All right. The National Archives then engages in ongoing communications with Trump representatives about missing records. So, you know, the archives are saying, well, you guys took some stuff that really does belong here in the archives. And they're going, oh, they're going back and forth, back and forth. Now, that January of uh, this year, the National Archives received 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago. 15 boxes. Our archivist David Ferrero informs the House Oversight Committee in the letter that classified national security information was found in the 15 boxes. And the Justice Department has been contacted about potential violations of the Presidential Records Act. Now, classified information and documents, the only person that can declassify them officially it's the president of the United States. So how do you know by he just turned around, looked at the document, and goes, oh, yeah, I'm declassifying that. Who are they to determine if it's classified or not? It's the president who determines if it's classified or not. So that's, that brings up such a gray, gray area. And in the spring of, 20, of this year, investigators interviewed Trump aides, either involved in the removal of the documents, to Mar-a-Lago or familiar with his storage at the Palm Beach Resort. And according to CNN, and here goes the Clinton News Network or the Criminal News Network, staffers who were contacted included Executive Assistant Molly Michael, Operations Coordinator Bo Harrison, and former White House Staff Secretary Derek Lyons, and former White House Valet Walt Nautia. Nauta? Nauta? Now, there is a mole somewhere in the Trump staff because someone, I think there's something like eight or nine people that have knowledge of these boxes and the documents in them. Someone is a mole, and they gave this information to the media, and it was a whistleblower to the DOJ. I'd love to find out who that is. And now on June 3rd, my birthday... Uh, DOJ and the FBI officials arrived at Mar-a-Lago with a grand jury subpoena and were shown a basement storage room where additional boxes containing White House documents and other materials are kept. Trump attorneys hand over documents marked as top secret, according to CNN. Now, that's as if they've never gotten a story wrong, right? No, no, CNN is always accurate and fair, right? Now, on June 22nd, the Trump Organization receives and complies with the subpoena. They complied with the subpoena for surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago, according to the Wall Street Journal. On August 5th, 
Judge Reinhardt, the one with ties to Epstein, issues a sealed search warrant for the former president's home. And on August 8th, plainclothes FBI agents search Mar-a-Lago for more than nine hours, concentrating on a bedroom, a safe, and at one point, scouring the former First Lady Melania Trump's wardrobe. And the remaining boxes are removed from the storage room. This is as shady as all heck. And I do believe we have our guest in here, the lovely, the one and only Lucretia Hughes. Lucretia, when are you and I going to get together? We're right across the border from each other. Girl, how are y'all doing? I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but whenever you're ready. Whenever you're ready. Hey, well, we both have doing? been so busy that we have never ever how had you a doing, to get together. How you doing, doing CS? Fine. Thank you so much. I was looking at my phone. I was like, oh, my goodness. So I ran to the back of a restaurant. So, but yes, ma'am, I'm here. That's all right. <laughs> oh, no, don't let your food get cold. <laughs> That'd be fine. Cold, <laughs> oh, man. You've got your, your Facebook uh, podcast that you do, Real News with Lucretia Hughes, and I love it, but I haven't been able to get onto it lately because my schedule has been so nuts. Um, but you and your but husband that's what also thing, have though, because it keeps you being busy and you're you're doing what you like to do. So absolutely, just catch it because it's like Monday through Friday, um, five to seven p.m. So you can always go back and catch up on it. So yes, ma'am. All right. Well, I'll have to try to get get the archives. Um, but you and your husband also have the company Fallback Production Studio. Um, now, when I was looking at some of the stuff you're doing. Uh, you have been doing a Faith Over Fear rally, which you had just a couple of days ago. How'd that go? It went pretty good. Thank, this is the first time I actually kind of participated because since it's a rally that we put on without any help or assistance, I don't have a big team. I'm running around trying to get everything done, but this time it was a blessing to have this rally because to me it was about a dedication of our property and our house back to God because faith over fear. We was under fear because we was dealing with a fraudulent reverse mortgage. And if it wasn't for the people on my show, raising the funds for a forensic uh, 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 handwriting specialist, we would have never known how corrupt and how widespread that this reverse mortgage industry and the fraud that is entailed. So we've been dealing with a battle for our life, for our property, to keep the roof over our head. It was so much fear. But to know that we um, proved that it was the, the forgery, we proved the fraud, I just wanted to be uh, grateful for everyone that watches us on a daily basis. And that's why we put it, um, Faith or Fear Rally, for God, family, and country. Oh, God bless. I'm glad you were able to unravel all that. You know, I, one of the things I did was I put on my property title lock. Um, and anything that happens, automatically it pops up. And I just recently had a survey done on my property. And, of course, as soon as the guy, you know, filed it, it immediately showed up in my title lock report. So um, I, I urge people, and if you people own don't property. don't know how fraudulent that is, that is so widespread, is that this e-filing, using stuff over the computer, you know, forging people's names, because no one would think to check their titles, their assets, their deeds, or records at the courthouse 
And with this electronic filing, it is running rampant because if you look at Florida, you look at Georgia, you look at a lot of um, states around the uh, United States, our elders are being bamboozled, and so are landowners. So if you own land, you have that type of asset, you know, and if you have grandparents that really worked hard all their life, make sure you keep up with their financial records. Make sure you keep up with the assets, the will, the, all the whole nine, because we wouldn't have found it. And we wouldn't have found any of this if it wasn't for the warranty deed that not only nobody signed in his family, it was all signed by the same person. So not his grandmother, his mother, nor himself took their names off this property to get a reverse mortgage, and that's fraud. Wow. Wow. Um, now there may be some good companies out there, but with the fraud out there, it is, it is really, really scary. It is, and I'm glad you were able to get it all straightened out, and, uh, and you and your husband are keeping your property and your land. But uh, it's, it is scary out there. Uh, but I want to change uh, back a little bit. Uh, they just recently passed this Inflation uh, Reduction Act. <laughs> I mean, if anything it is, it's the exact opposite. And we're already in a recession. They're just pushing us over the cliff further. I mean, what are these people thinking of? It's supposed to reduce cost of medicines, but it's going to do the exact opposite. I call them psychiatric psychopaths. I don't know what these old folks up there doing because I'm about tired of them. They really need to be in a home. Uh, the key people in our government right now has dementia, preterm dementia, where you sitting here with the tripping of using the Gestapo, I mean the IRS, I mean the FBI, against a former <laughs> sitting president. Did you not know what you just did? Because we like to play tit for tat. And one day these little candy, I mean these uh, elitist Republicans are going to get either uh, some cojones but it does not matter because implied immunity or immunity at all just went out the window. Now, we want to see what Obama did. We want to see what Clinton did. We want to even see what crooked Bush and his daddy and peanut guy over here in, in Georgia. Since you open up the president for this to happen, then I hope you are ready to for tit and tat. That's what they don't realize. They think they can pull the gun on us. But wait a minute, we're also armed. Oh, wait a minute, that's right. They, they just passed the gunman's legislation. Uh, and I don't care. I don't care. I do. I'm not going to allow someone to come to my house with a gun pointed without me putting up a fight. I don't care if they say IRS, FBI, or anybody else. So I'm going to be like, what the hell? Make it quick, put a bullet in our head. My name ain't Anne Frank, and I'm not going up into the attic. <laughs> if that means Wolverine and I'm not saying kumbaya and, you know, I need to trust the government, I'm an insurrectionist or a domestic terrorist because I love my God, my family, and my country. I believe in men or the head of the household. I also truly believe that we should be in the home of the brave, but we are being ruled by dictators that don't have no brain in their head and some people that use polygrip as a toothpaste. I'm over it. <laughs> oh, what was you saying? <laughs> was I saying something? I'm just going to sit back and let you take over. <laughs> I'm over this. I'm so over it. And people are like, what? who gives you the authority? My life. My grandchildren. I don't need to have some fake certificate because there's a lot of people walking around here with book smarts but ain't got no street smart, no common sense that is taking us into the breaking point. And I'm over these fools. 
and I'm over these psychopaths. And I'm sorry, we don't need the Wolverines, the the Patriots, the Nationalists, the Loyalists, the Proud Boys, the Proud Girls, the the Hoods in the woods to finally stand the hell up because they need us quicker than we need them. <laughs> That's for damn sure. But they want to make us their slaves. They're trying to cut out the middle class. I ain't picking cotton. I don't even like heat nor bugs. Who the hell are they looking at? Because I'm black? I ain't going out like that. Well, if they, they cut out the middle class, you know, we end up becoming their servants. We could become dependent upon government. That We now bow at the altar of the government because if they cut off our Social Security, they cut off our welfare, they cut off our Obama phone. Get CS, get her. She's trying to get me riled up on her show. Get, get, get her, CS. <laughs> Come all the trigger warnings for me. I'm literally looking at Wolverine's Red Dawn at any moment. Well, Curtis forgot to unmute himself. Curtis, come back to us, Curtis. Come on back. Come on back. <laughs> oh, man. You know, it, 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 it's, uh, he, they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's another version of Biden's Build Back Better, or as I say, Build Back Bitter. And it's starting to backfire. Now, look at this, what happened over at Mar-a-Lago. It, talk about Ooh. the FBI shooting themselves in the foot. Oh, my God, the stuff Garland is coming out of about this. People. Oh, Garland of all people. But if you look at the 45 rules of communist goals out from, you could call it, it says um, discredit and finally dis, uh, eventually dismantle the FBI. Well, if you do that, you're going to get a bigger step to not only the CIA but also to the UN peacekeepers. But this has been put into works and has been um, been discredited in them since George Bush Sr. or Roosevelt or, I'm sorry, Hoover. So it just, it's just dependent too much power in one um one administration and now the other, which is the uh, guard dog or the brown jackets or I don't know what you want to call them, the Gestapo, which is the IRS, has the most employees. So guess what's going to happen? They're going to shoot the kill sooner or later. Well, I am putting up on the screen uh, because we're up uh, Facebook Live and back on YouTube because I got banned. So I had to use a different account, but don't tell them. <laughs> um, I, I put this mime together, put side by side Merrick Garland and Fauci. And there's a little, the verse from a song, uh, the cousins, remember from the Patty Duke show, identical cousins. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if anyone's watching, time. take a look at this. It, it is just too funny. When you put them side by side, they look so much alike. And they actually put uh-huh. like, the health they? secretary that's confused. I mean, he wants us to play like he a woman. That guy and uh, Mitch McConnell put them side by side. That's even creepier. <laughs> or should we say bitch McConnell? <laughs> I call him Cousin. You, know, you don't want to get something, Lucretia? <laughs> I believe you're right. I believe they're so desperate that they would try to take this guy out. That's how much they are afraid of him and fear him getting back in the office. Well, so I hope he got was, some good bodyguards. Well, it, it's former NYPD uh, police commissioner Bernard Carrick in an interview. Uh, um, it was, was a it, uh, assassination. He is calling for an assassination attempt on the president, former president of the United States. That guy should have been taken out. <clears throat> 
Well, Bernard Carrick said he's afraid that someone will t- attempt to take him out and is just warning him to get enough bodyguards and security around himself. I mean, he does have Secret Service around him, but, hey, they shot Reagan, right? He just doesn't no have Secret Service. Understand, Trump have the same security force he had when he was in the 80s. These are ex-CIA. They have been a part of his security since he was um, on the lifestyle of the rich and famous. So the people that surround him, remember he had all those assassination attempts when he was in the president of the United States. One particular one that jumps out to me is when he shut down Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats from taking that war tour when they was on the tarmac. It was the same day he had actually had an assassination attempt. So, you know, they're doing anything and everything to keep him away from the White House, to, to deaden his political influence, and everything they do, it's backfiring on him. And I'm loving it because yeah, he's just grow, growing stronger and stronger. Yeah, but we're stuck in the middle. We're stuck in the middle of this hoo-la-la-la-la. Uh, and I don't want to take nobody out, but if they run up, they're going to F around and find out. But all these veiled threats that they're giving us, this caste system they're trying to place us in, the uh, civil war they're trying to put us in, I'm just over it, especially when we see what's going on. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous to me. But all of these veiled threats that the followers do, all these veiled threats that these sitting congressmen and senators put out there that gives you the Black Lives Matter, the Antifa, and the whole nine, you know, we are the targets of these people. But I'm over it. So square your shoulders because it's either us or it's now or never. Well, now they've added 87 thousand they more than doubled they actually tripled the irs not only that these people that they hire that they're going to hire it's going to take them six months to train are going to be armed now you're telling me you're hiring clerks to help with backlogs and process um the uh uh, 1040s that we file you're going to process these tax returns with clerks but you're going to arm the clerks really um, that doesn't sound it's exactly right. It's going to go right. as good as the red flag laws. <clears throat> I'm going to say this one more time. It's going to go as good as the red flag laws. They're going to roll up and F around and find out at a whole bunch of people's houses, just like they did with these veterans, these ex-military vets, the way they thought these police officers was going to arrive to their house, try to get their guns and um, bogart in their property, and people wind up dying. This is not going to turn out right. But this is what it takes, and this is what happens when you take the populace and push their backs against the wall and push them to a breaking point. Not only are they going to start fighting for their lives. They're going to start fighting for the last um, morsel of food. They're going to start fighting for gas. They're going to start fighting for their paycheck and their children. You should have waited 20 more years to where the baby boomers and the Generation X was dead and gone. You decided to try to take us over when we still know what it means to be a loving American and not some globalistic society. And you know, you got a point there. I believe that they do not trust the military to stand with them when they make their move on the populace. So they're going to arm the agencies as much as they can because they have control over the bureaucracy. And I remember when Barack Obama was um, in office and they were sending high-powered um, bullets and stuff to all these agencies. What would they need this stuff for? 
That was one trillion rounds of ammunition that the Barack Hussein Obama had bought at the time and was giving it to the agencies. But if you look at what just happened in the last six months, not only did the IRS spend almost uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on ammunition and also uh, the hardware with it, it's ridiculous because you're not even leaving. You're leaving our southern borders open. You're allowing these people to come out over the place. You're trying to trample over, you know, assault weapons or whatever the heck that means, only means protect ourselves, and that's, that's, so we can't fight back. That's right. Well, you know, they, they tried to do that when we started the Tea Parties. They used the IRS to go after us. And those of us that were smart and kept our heads down by not becoming a 501c3 laughed all our ways and still held our rallies and still – took down the left one time after another after another. But the only way they could shut us down was using the IRS. Uh, now they're trying that again. You know, anyone with a conservative voice, you, me, Curtis, Trump, any, anyone with a conservative voice that is fighting against the swamp, we're going to be the targets. And YouTube took me down. They banned me. And I've I been banned through YouTube backdoor. for two years. You'll get, you'll get used to it. You go ahead and diversify <laughs> on Rumble, DLive, Anchor FM. I got you. I got you on how to diversify. And don't worry about YouTube. We're on 17 different channels, and plus God Family Country, Oxy Media, and then we on Spreely and Spreely.tv. So you worrying about um, YouTube, don't. I got you on that. So we'll figure out how to fight back. We don't have to use their platforms. There's independent people out there that does, and it's just not Republicans or conservatives. They're looking at anybody with $600 or more. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But in order for you to, for them to do that, they've got to now ban cash, which is the next step. Well, they started I mean, doing that during the Great Reset or the scamdemic or the pandemic, depending on what you believe. And I believe all the pool I law of Vent 203. These people are like, what the heck is she talking about? Do your own research. But they've been playing this when they shut us down in the house. They did a whole research on a whole bunch of stuff, and people just uh, fell asleep and allowed their civil liberties to be snatched away. This is why I do a show every day, Monday through Friday, from 5 to 7. What topics we got next? Because <laughs> it's like, and then you try to talk to a layman's person like this that's on your level to let them know what they've been doing. I mean, how you not know this stuff? And then they just blinking at you or calling you a conspiracy theorist. The difference between that and the truth is six months. Just uh, pay attention. And we sell T-shirts that says, we the people told you so. Because I'm getting tired <laughs> of telling grown folks what's going on. You know, I was looking at your T-shirts, and I was laughing just reading some of the stuff. And I said, you know, I've been talking about putting stuff like that up on my website and just have not got around to it. And one T-shirt I loved, I always I always get a lot of comments because I, I designed this myself. It's a picture of a Madonna-style woman holding a baby. And uh, across it, it says, I thank God my mother chose life. And you think about that. I mean, you got people uh, pro-choice you know, protesting for pro-choice. Well, if your mother wasn't pro-life and gave birth to you, you wouldn't have the voice to go pro-choice because you wouldn't exist. Right? This. While the people that are breathing advocating for the ones that's not, so, ma'am, sir, come here. This is this member bit. Now, let me go ahead and finish you. Snatch your heart out your chest and tell me how it feels, because that's exactly what you did to that unborn child. I don't debate with evil folks. This is straight-up evil and demonic. 
I am a mother of four, had all four before I was age of 20, and I am a grandmother of nine. So wow. you preach it to the choir. Um, I'm going to advocate for the elderly. I'm going to advocate for the unborn, and I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant by the God Almighty. They don't like me because I talk like this. <laughs> no, we love you because you talk like that. Exactly why we love you. But every time I wear that T-shirt, I have someone that stops me, and they, they compliment me on the T-shirt. i got to see if I can make one and send it over to you because I made it myself. Well, the one I'm wearing tonight on the show, it says, we the people are pissed. <laughs> I love it, but you should get a picture of that that uh, cartoon character that you know pisses out on the street. You know they usually use it like piss on Ford or something like that. But do it with Biden's head, <laughs> something like that. Oh wow! Then I'll really be banned from Facebook. <laughs> yeah, permanently. I'm gonna get you in trouble. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna get you in trouble. Hey, listen, we've got the gift that keeps on giving in Beto O'Rourke, that fake Hispanic. <laughs> he he tries to do a rally. Where the heck was he? Um, where the heck was he? He wrapped up a campaign stop in Rockdale. And as he walked back to his truck, it turns out there was a lot of uh, Governor Abbott supporters there. Uh, they were also carrying signs about Abbott and dancing to Kid Rock, We the People. And they were heckling the heck out of O'Rourke, and he couldn't seem to get more than 25 people to show up at his rally. <laughs> you think Beto would get the hint? No, because that's a, that he's, he's the poster boy for a privileged narcissist. Don't nobody like him. He's just like a, a whole nother Hunter Biden. Nobody likes you. We could care less about you, but you just out there. Why you ain't in jail? But with Beto, just don't nobody like him. Hunter, I'm still trying to figure out why haven't the FBI rated his office. But that's neither here nor there. He's not going to win against Abbott. Pretty boy Floyd need to go on back to the dentist's office, do a whole another TikTok, and he'll be all right because these Hispanics over there in uh, Texas um, is going to get Francis. His name is Francis. <laughs> well, um, my friend he's Emery McClendon. He's a beta. I mean, he's just an easy target. Yep, yep, he is. He is an easy target. But my friend Emery Clinton, who is um, a Tea Party leader, oh, God, Emery, you're going to kill me. I forget the – oh, Emery, just tell me which place was uh, – out in the Midwest. But anyway, who's mentioning – when you mentioned the uh, military, that they're purging the military. Well, if you remember Millie Vanilli or General Mark Milley, as I call him, Millie Vanilli, he's he's – Featured in an upcoming uh, New York New Yorker writer Susan Glass's new book, The Divider: Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Supposedly, mm-hmm. he wrote this four-paragraph resig- letter of resignation to Trump. I mean, the guy is delusional. He feels that Trump was ruining the military when he was bringing back the military to the purpose that they were supposed to be, you know, not the social engineering. The military is there to defend the nation and secure our borders. They're there to destroy and kill. That is the purpose of the military. But he felt that Trump was destroying it, and he didn't understand the world order. Talk about a delusional general, and he's still in in charge. Millie Vanilli is still in charge. What are we going to do about this guy? I don't know. 
I have no idea what to do with it, half of these people. I don't know. I really don't know. But continue talking about it. Are we putting a bullseye on our backs because we are bringing this to light? Absolutely. But what do you do about it? You can't go up there and physically hurt them. I mean, you can't do anything or get them out of office. It's like you, you reek and see the evil, and you try to be the best person you can be, and it's like they get skated by to do all the evil and uh, not uphold their oath of office, and you can't get rid of them. I have no idea what to do. So um, when people ask me, what do else we do? We vote. We talk about it. We got to witness. We run for politics. We run for office. But what what else can we do? What can we do? Um, Emery reminded me that he's over in Indiana. He's got family out near me, so whenever he does visit, we try to get together. But Emery McClinton, uh, you got to check him out. You would love to have him talk to him. Because they would love to declare martial law on the American citizens right now, which would give them an easy way out with no election know anything, and they completely just take us over because of uh, what George uh, Bush Jr. gave them the ability to do. So what do we do? Well, that's the whole thing. That's what the whole lockdown was about. I believe it was actually a dry run to see whether or not we would resist. And I think they found out that uh, we're not as docile as they think. There are people, a majority of us, not a majority, but a large portion of us, that would follow like sheep. And I still see people driving around in cars alone, alone in the car, windows rolled up, wearing a damn mask. And that that blows my mind. Or you see someone riding a bicycle, no one else around them, but they're wearing a mask. So there are some sheeple out there, but the vast majority of us Americans, we will resist. Uh, But they were testing us with the lockdown. Now they're trying with the monkeypox. Well, we got another. We got another strain coming through. Another strain of the COVID. Oh well, well, wait a minute. Uh, the vaccines aren't working on the new strains. So we got to give you a booster or something else to stop the new. Str- it doesn't stop diddly squat. But I guess they they found like you said we're not as docile as they think we are. I know I'm not, and I don't even eat bananas, so I, I I'm not looking at monkeypox anytime soon. <laughs> well, you know, someone's turning around and said to me, you know, what is what epox? Well, listen. If you exchange bodily fluid with someone of the same sex, um, bisexual or homosexual, you have a potential of spreading monkeypox if you were exposed. But no, no, they're not going to talk about that because if you say something like that, you're homophobic. I'm gonna say it anyway. And no offense, being a homosexual or gay or whatever new word, I ain't, I ain't doing the alphabet. You can just forget about it. Um, just tell me what your first name is, and I ain't doing pronouns either. <laughs> I'm gonna, I, I, look, it don't rub off. I ain't finna go try to hunt you or hunt your leg because you gay. So announcing it to me, and I'm going to look at you straight in your face and be like, is it contagious? Then what? The, I care. You don't have to lead off with that. I'm going to love you or I'm not going to like you. It doesn't make me care who you bump uglies with. I ain't, I don't have to play with your fantasy world. I could care less if you're trying to make a statement. I'm strictly, and that's all I like. So knowing people and what they do in their bedrooms has nothing to do with me. You need to ask them, did you dish this month, if we're going to get all personal. <laughs> See, I'm a very uh, straight to the forward type of person. This is why they can't stand me. <laughs> I care. I really don't care. And if you split your tongue, you you look like an idiot. So I'm gonna judge you. 
people, you're not supposed to judge the hell you say. Yeah, I is, and I'm going to continue doing this. I am I am such a um, generational ex person. Ain't nobody got time for that. Life's too short. It's, I sound like my I mom. Said, I, I don't care what you do behind closed doors. That's your business. But if it's something that's going to directly affect my pocketbook, my property, and my rights and freedoms, then it is my business. But how, what preference you have, I don't care. Just don't interfere with me. Just leave me and don't alone. Ask, and look, and if your name is Joanna, don't ask me to call you Joanna Band. We over this. I don't want to be associated. Look, if you look like a man but you're just in the skirt, I'm pretty much going to call you sir. That's <laughs> the only way I can identify you. Well, people can find you up on Facebook, Real News with Lucretia <laughs> Hughes. And they can find you at fallbackproductionstudio.com. Lucretia, it's always so much fun to have you with, and we got to get you back more often. I keep on saying that every time you do, and I get so swamped. I, Girl, just beat me up. Well, so CS will let me know, and thank you so much, CS, because I was sitting here with my phone, and I was like, whoop, well, let me run to the back of the bar. We good to go. No problem. No <laughs> All right, problem. God bless you, girl. God bless y'all. Y'all have a good one. All right. Too. Stay in touch. All right, Lucretia Hughes. Uh, she's, she's always so, so much fun, and I really do have to call her and meet her over in Savannah one day. I want to welcome on to the show a New Jerseyite. He is running for Congress out of New Jersey District 12, Darius Mayfield. Good afternoon, Darius. How are you today? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm well, and yourself? Oh, we're doing just ducky. Um, you have yourself a podcast called Not Black, Not White. American. Now, recently, I lost a friend of mine uh, about a year or so ago, Lloyd Marcus, and his favorite thing was the unhyphenated American. And I thought about the two of you and how much your principles are so much alike. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's really what it's all about, just kind of getting to the root of who we really are, kind of like uh, Martin Luther King said, we need to judge men and women by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. So, I think this is something that resonates with a lot of people. I see a bunch of different iterations of it, so that's funny to hear that from you. But uh, it's exactly the message that Americans need to hear, and it's exactly the way that we need to start operating and moving forward. And that's a shame because everyone wants to divide lately. You know, they have to be identified by their pronoun or the one of the new, I don't know, what is it, 96 different genders now? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't play that game. I don't play that yeah. game. If I see a man standing in front of me, you're a man. If I see a woman standing in front of me, you're a woman. You're what God made you. So let, let's get let's get beyond that, and let's talk about the more important things, like what our Congress is doing to our pocketbooks, how our Congress is now restricting our rights, our freedoms, and is causing a massive re- inflation that is now a full-blown recession. That's the conversation we should be having. I don't care what what you claim to be. You could be a doorpost for all I care. But just yeah, I, let's get to the heart of what's important and let's have that conversation. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not a conversation uh, our elected officials should have ever really started to have because, as you said, you know, in a free country like America, you can choose to be who and what it is you want at the end of the day. And uh, we really didn't need to have a congressional or a political conversation about it. But 
that's where the Democratic Party has taken us. Uh, you know, you can see things like they don't want us to say a man anymore because it has the word man in it. You got to say a man and a woman. You can't call moms and dads uh, moms and dads anymore. You got to call them birthing people. So they're just getting more and more out of control, more and more radical. And I think the good news about it is the overwhelming majority of Americans see this, they understand it, they realize it, and they're voting against it at the end of the day. And as you just said, Inflation is probably the number one issue on Americans' minds right now. We just went from an administration that had uh, next to zero inflation when it came to the Trump administration, as well as one of the first administrations in my lifetime to actually see real wage growth. Now we're seeing people losing their jobs. We're seeing wages decline, and inflation is still going higher and higher while this administration is still backing a policy of non-energy independence, because we do understand that them taking us off the road to energy independence was a big factor in actually uh, inflating our inflation. And, uh, and also, obviously, the trillions of dollars they've spent since they've been in office. And these factors combined, they're just really decimating the middle class, decimating underserved communities, and even decimating some upper class neighborhoods as well, because these are things that affect all of our everyday lives, the products, the things that we use, the things that we do, it's affecting all of us. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, Democrats are not focused on the right issues right now, and you're seeing that uh, really be brought out in the elections we see across the country, whether it's Myra in places like Texas, whether it's uh, in Kenosha where Republicans won overwhelmingly. You know, you're seeing Republicans win seats that they haven't actually held for hundreds of years. So the people are speaking. People's eyes are opening. People are waking are waking up, and there's a reason why you see Joe Biden now at under 60% approval rating amongst African Americans, down to 19% approval rating amongst Hispanics. These are numbers that we haven't seen for a Democratic president in our lifetime. So as I like to tell Republicans, the people, no matter their political affiliation, no matter their color, no matter what part of the country they come from, are sending us a very clear signal that they are ready to listen. If we can stay balanced, level-headed, focus on the right issues, they will give us a chance. And that's all because of Joe Biden and this administration. You know, this administration, the swamp that is in D.C. and what you call political cartels, uh, we've got to break them down. And we're seeing more and more conservatives winning their primaries and eventually taking over the seats. And we're seeing more minorities in the Republican Party stepping forward and saying, I want a piece of the pie. I want to get in the game and turn this nation around, which is really heartening. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, it was interesting over in Michigan where you got people like John Gibbs running. They have three black Republicans now that now won their primary. Uh, John Gibbs is one that actually beat out the incumbent Republican out there in Michigan. Here in New Jersey, you have two black Republicans uh, running for office, myself and Billy Prempe. And over in Michigan, you have no uh, candidates of color running as Democrats on the other side. So I think there really is an awakening. We can call it a uh, switch of sorts, a switch of parties of sorts. And You know, that's my message even when I go into these urban uh, neighborhoods. I like to remind them that it's time to diversify your political affiliation. You know, if you look at underserved, uh, crime-ridden, violent neighborhoods around this country, there's one thing that's usually constant, and that's whether it's your school board, your city council, or your mayor, they're typically nine times out of ten Democrats. So I think black and brown people in these communities are starting to wake up and understand that 
We've been voting the same thing in over and over and over. We've been listening to these Democrats give us a bunch of lip service during the primaries, during their run, promising what they're going to do, how great and exceptional they're going to make our communities, only to find out two years later when it comes to Congress, four years later when it comes to the president, that things have, in fact, usually nine times out of ten gotten worse, not better. You know, uh, normally when I, I talk to someone that sits on the opposite side of the aisle, I try to find a common ground that we can all agree on. And my question has always been, if you go into a typically black congregation church, they're conservative in their faith. But yet when they walk out the door, they vote the actual opposite. So my point to my politician friends was, why aren't you going into these churches and talking to them there and let them understand that we both stand on the same side of the aisle when we deal with, you know, faith and family. You know, we believe in hard work. We believe in trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We believe in God and worshiping God. We believe in the gospel. We have the same beliefs and then translate that into our political ideals, which is what our founding fathers did, and we can win over our hearts and minds. Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head, and one of the sad things is that when we look back throughout history and even now in recent times, uh, we find that a lot of these so-called black leaders, black pastors, a lot of times have been manipulated in such ways and bought off in a lot of ways. I mean, I'll take it back to somebody like a Margaret Sanger, who originally created Planned Parenthood, which, as we know, was originally called the Negro Project. And I wonder why it was called that. But when they first came out, obviously, her goal was to get rid of the undesirables, and that was black people, uh, very poor white people, Jewish people, and those with uh, special needs. And when they came out with this project at first, she actually went straight to the black community, specifically black pastors, to go and preach this message of abortion and to push uh, the, this, this forward in our communities. And as we see, they've accomplished their goal. You know, since the uh, indoctrination of Roe v. Wade, we've aborted over 20 million black babies just in this country alone. We are now at a point where we're literally aborting more black babies than are being born every day. And one of the biggest reasons this message was able to circulate throughout the community and become normalized is because of the guidance of black pastors uh, that were manipulated and in some cases bought off uh, by the other side to make this a prominent message in our community. So I, I do agree with what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I see it for myself. And it's really not a good thing, but here is the good news, as with everything else. People are really starting to open up their eyes to this. They really are starting to understand. And I even put out a message a couple of weeks ago that my, my, to see Christians, black Christians, white Christians, um, in whatever case it is, uh, kind of rebel against uh, this ruling to strike down Roe v. Wade really makes my childhood very confusing. Okay. You know, explain, explain that. Well, I, it, the, the reason I say that is that I grew up in the church. You know, I grew up playing the drums. Uh, my mom was a minister. Uh, multiple of my uncles were pastors. They still are. A couple of my aunts were pastors. And, you know, I just remember growing up in the church and, you know, being taught that life is precious. Life is valuable. You know, people often talk about their rights in the Constitution, but nowhere in the Constitution does it give you the right to kill a life. In fact, it promotes 
uh, the saving of life, just like it does in our Christian teaching. So to actually have gone through all those years of church, to actually have heard pastors preach so much about life and how precious it is and, you know, how it starts at conception and that's God's will to, you know, make sure we protect every uh, part of life. And now to see some of those same people actually advocating for the death and destruction um, of those babies, of human life, is quite confusing. And I'm sure it's not just me. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are just, just as confused. Yeah, because wasn't it in the, yeah. in the gospel that I knew you in the womb? In other words, you were a human being. You were one of my children before you ever exited the womb. So you still were a child of God from, from the womb, post-womb. Yes, and that's Agreed. true. And I was going to say, I agree with you. I don't. I don't think you're going to reach the black community with the conservative message through the church, since I believe like 90% of the pastors in the black church are gatekeepers of the um, the progressive agenda, and yeah. um, they will not allow you to come in there and talk about conservatism or anything Republican. Uh, we have to find other ways to reach that community, and and. We've done a good job here in Florida, um, but like I said, most of your pastors, they are nothing more than modern-day um, filled Negroes, as they would say, back in slave times, you know, to keep them on the plantation. Yeah. Well, I always said, if I, mean, I, if I see a pastor with shoes more expensive for driving a car more expensive than mine, <laughs> then that's not the church for me. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you. I'm sure you took an interest in that story out of New York, where the pastor just got robbed for over a million dollars worth of jewelry that he was wearing. Him <laughs> and his wife. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's quite comical, and you know, I got to tell you, this is why um, I like to dive a little deep into this stuff, and this is why a lot of people look at the black community in a lot of cases as a joke, uh, because there is so much hypocrisy. You know, not just in the church when we talk about you know, uh, the failing violent schools, the violent neighborhoods that we live in, the music that we listen to and rap music, you know, it's, it's just very hypocritical. And, you know, to see those same people that have been championing, championing all these things that kind of go against um, our teachings now come out and try to speak to people like myself or, you know, the average American citizen, uh, like they have some type of moral authority is, very confusing. It's very hypocritical. And it's no wonder why as a people, um, until this day still, we haven't been taken very seriously. So it is a big problem. But again, I think the good thing right now is more than I've ever seen before, ever felt before. Um, I think those things are changing, uh, no matter how small it is. And when it comes to, you know, you're absolutely right. There is uh, this, uh, this, this attitude that in order to win in certain communities, specifically underserved black communities, that you have to go into the church and get the support of those churches. Well, I haven't done that yet. I'll be honest with you. Um, there are pastors that do support me. Uh, I do know they are reaching out to some just to, you know, make that connection and see what we can do. But other than that, I'm going out to places like Trenton, New Jersey, on my own. I'll wake up in the morning and just decide I want to go out to Trenton, stand on the corner, and talk to people. I think I might be the first Republican that has lawn signs in black yards in Trenton, New Jersey, because people, once they hear my story, once they hear my issues, there's always a connection. 
And the problem is for so long we've been letting these pastors speak for us. We've been letting these political corrupt career politicians speak for us, and nobody's ever really hearing from the people. So when I go into these neighborhoods and I talk about the need to politically diversify, when I talk about implementing school choice, when I talk about term limits or a peace through strength international policy, every single person in those black and brown underserved communities agrees with the message. They agree that this is what's needed, and they also agree and understand, especially the older generation, that the Democratic Party has been banking on going into these communities and speaking to uh, uh, ill-informed, uninformed voters just to get them emotional about issues, and that's how they're really obtaining their votes. They're not doing it with logic. They're not doing it with reasoning or actually having policies that will actually uplift these communities. They're doing it through tapping into people's emotions and making them emotional over the issue so they make emotional decisions uh, at the end of the day that continue to keep, continue to uh, really feed their own detriment at the end of the day. Now, you mentioned education at one point, and you're a product of school choice, correct? Yeah, I'm a a product of kind of like a fake school choice, one that my mother created, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And, and, I mean, basically, what I'll say about this is, you know, other than places like Arizona and a couple other Republican states where they have actual school choice, the only school choice we have in places like New Jersey and underserved communities are sports, right? And everybody seems to forget that because we do have school choice. As much as Democrats want to rail against school choice, they do have a school choice in these communities, and that's through sports and athletes. And, you know, we see it all the time. If they see an athlete in a, uh, a failing school that has the ability to go somewhere and make their team better and make them a lot of money, they'll go into that school. They'll pick that kid out, even though he doesn't live in the district they're taking him to, and send them to a better school so they can benefit from that person's athleticism or, uh, you know, physical prowess at the end of the day. What my mom did was we grew up in a very underserved community uh, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and when I was about in second, third grade, somewhere around there, I walk into breakfast one day, and uh, me and my boy Jaja and some kid who was maybe 300 feet in front of us uh, bent down in between two garbage cans and picked up a knife about 12 inches long. It was a really long knife. Uh, to this day, I don't know who the kid was, why he picked it up, why he started chasing us, but that's what happened. So he started chasing us with that knife, and that morning I ran all the way home. I got home, and my mother, obviously I told her what happened, and she said, I'll never send you back to that school. So within a couple of weeks, she actually went to my aunt that lived in the next town over in South Brunswick and asked her if she could use her address to send me to school out there. And my aunt agreed, and basically my mom would drop me off every morning for the bus and then pick me up every night uh, to make sure I was able to go to school in South Brunswick. And about a year or two into that, uh, they called us in the office. My mother was there when I got there, and they basically told her that somebody had uh, ratted us out and said that uh, Darius didn't really live in South Brunswick and it was illegal what she was doing. So she had two choices. Either she could uh, keep going forward with this, keep me in school, and they would sue her for everything and uh, associate it with her doing this, or she could send me back to school in New Brunswick. And they realized that I had a very traumatic experience in Lord Sterling School, so they said we will let him go back to any school in New Brunswick. It's just so funny how that happened because everybody else in New Brunswick, if you live two blocks away from each other, you probably went to a different school because that's just how it's designed and how segregated it actually is. So obviously my mom, you know, being from very humble beginnings, uh, wasn't just going to go to court and be sued because she didn't have the money to do that. So she took us out and sent us to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, 
Uh, to make a long story short, Woodrow Wilson was a lot more of the same, although I wasn't chased by a knife or anything. You can just tell it wasn't a proper education, a quality education. And obviously for the year or two that I had spent in South Project, I was able to see for myself how different the experiences were. I went from not playing outside in Laura Sterling, not doing much, to uh, going on field trips in South Project to the Poconos, being in the school choir, being in the band, things I would have never been exposed to if I didn't get that opportunity. So what my mom did a couple of months later was she packed up everything she had and moved it to the poorest part of South Brunswick, right next to the trailer park, to ensure that me and my sister got the quality education. And if she had not done that, I probably wouldn't be here sitting and talking to you guys today. Wow. So this is the reason why school choice is so important, why we need to get the Fed out of ed. And this is something you yes, want to work ma'am. on. This is my number one issue, and it, it, it's just it's just so funny. We know why we won't do it here in New Jersey. Um, it has nothing to do with the betterment of students. Uh, it has nothing to do with the quality of education. The reason they won't do it here is because the NJEA, the uh, teachers union out here, will not allow them to because they're that powerful. You know, in fact, last year was the first year in the NJEA's history that they spent more than 50% of their funds towards political activities. So I don't even look at them as a teachers union anymore. They're a political organization uh, at the end of the day. But for me, I've identified uh, school choice. And, you know, one other thing, it's just funny to hear Democrats' arguments against school choice when all the data coming out right now says it increases the quality of education. It actually desegregates our schools and makes integration more possible in our school system when Democrats are actually op- arguing for the opposite. And, you know, so it's just, it's just really nonsensical for them to keep putting up the, the same uh, uninformed arguments they do to kind of rail against public school. And their biggest argument a lot of times is that Republicans are looking to just defund the public school system. Now, I'm a capitalist. I'm a businessman. And, you know, I'm no nonsense and I'm all about tangible results. So I got to tell you, if, if it was possible for me to just kind of go into Trenton, New Jersey, Plainfield, New Jersey, these underserved communities where kids are failing, can't read at their grade levels and things of that sort, and just fire every single school board member, fire every single principal, um, and, and fire every single educational administrator there that has failed their children, I would. Unfortunately, that's not the case, and we can't do that. So the way we can do that is by really encouraging and implementing school choice. Our governor just a month or two ago actually uh, declined a proposal to expand school choice in uh, New Jersey, which the funny thing about that is, and they don't report on this, the people that were most upset about that were parents in underserved communities. Because if you go to Newark, New Jersey, where I went to school for a little bit, and it was hell when I went out to school out there. It was like something like you've never seen out of a Dangerous Minds movie. But when you go there now, the most successful schools in Newark, New Jersey, are those charter schools. So they want to expand those charter schools. They want to expand their parochial schools. But yet, the person that they voted for in large droves, their Democratic governor right now, actually just declined that because he's under the thumb of the teachers union in New Jersey. So the people actually want it, and it's time for us to start listening to the people. And that's why I encourage Republicans, Democrats, black and white people to really start listening to each other. Listen, we all want the same things at the end of the day. We want life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and we want our kids to have more and better opportunities than we did growing up. We're all in, 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 in conjunction on that. Now, we might have different ways of getting there sometimes, and that's okay. This is America. You can agree to disagree sometimes, but we can still all work towards a common goal. So it's really time for people to start looking at who your America First candidates are, 
stop looking at the party of people. It's about putting people over party, people over politics, and start putting in the people that are genuinely interested in your progression and ready to do the right things for you no matter how much it goes against the public popular perception. Now, change the subject just a little bit because you're talking about, you know, the quality of the neighborhoods. Uh, we've got a porous border. We, are, we have a military that is demoralized. Uh, you have been to the border more times than Kamala Harris. Why is it you, as just a concerned citizen, will care more about the border than the borders are Queen Kamala Mella? Well, we got a problem well, I think here, you don't we? Said it. I think you said it the right just said it the right way just now because I actually care. And just a quick correction, I've actually been to the border in the last year more times than Kamala Harris and Joe Biden combined. I just went for yep. my third time um, about, uh, I guess, a month and a half ago. We actually have, uh, finally have our documentary of that border trip premiering on my campaign website on August 23rd. So make sure you guys all check that out where you'll actually get to see that we were uh, being filmed and photographed by the cartel from across the river. They started playing narco music while we were out there. We actually ended up going on a foot chase uh, with the Border Patrol and the Sheriff's Office to apprehend some of the people that came over the water um, illegally. And I was also, I can't, I can't verify this with 100% certainty, but it seems like I was actually poisoned while I was out there as well to some degree where I was sick, uh, violently sick for almost two weeks. But Again, I think what you said is exactly why, because I actually care. You know, I care that I've been watching communities like the one I grew up with and grew up in, New Brunswick, New Jersey, go from a mostly black and Puerto Rican populated uh, urban area to being gentrified to such degrees and now watching downtown where it's all literally 100% Mexican businesses down there. You know, there's a lot of illegal immigration that goes on down there, and all those black people that were there when I was a kid growing up have been displaced everywhere, right? So, and that's also why another one of my policies really is uh, housing and housing equality, and really going back and reaching to these neighborhoods, starting to implement things like uh, financial literacy courses in class, starting to put more of an emphasis on the trade, and really teaching those people how to stop. Um, in a lot of cases, which are white liberals from coming in and gentrifying their neighborhoods, which is happening in places like Harlem right now, and really learning how to obtain and grow generational wealth and as well as pass that on to the next generation. So our border trips, uh, I went to El Paso, I went to Roma, Texas, and this last time I was out in uh, McAllen, Texas, and, you know, all three of those times I got to literally myself with my own two eyes witness hundreds of illegal uh, immigrants coming over our border, and I also got to witness our border patrol really having their hands tied and having to follow uh, the orders of the Biden administration, which this last time we went to Rome, Texas, uh, which really consisted of them walking over the border, border patrol bringing out a couple of tables and a couple of chairs, sitting everybody down one by one, taking their information, processing them, and then practically busing them into our country. You know, my only question to them was, why are you not just sending them back to the countries that they came from? And their answers were because that's not what this administration is allowing us to do. So they don't care. This is really about replacing the vote. We saw what, they, saw, we saw what happened in New York. Uh, thank God the Supreme Court struck this down. But for a little bit there, it became legal for non-citizens to vote in their local elections out in New York City. After years of pretty much calling us conspiracy theories as conspiracy theorists as conservatives and Republicans for actually saying this is what was going to happen. 
Now, thank God New York still has somewhat of a cognizant, uh, intelligent, fair uh, Supreme Court that actually struck that down, so it's no longer happening. But what's going on at our border is absolutely disgusting. It's really tearing apart our country. It's really destroying our neighborhoods. It has for a long time. And, you know, fortunately, we do have the blueprint now because the last administration, I personally believe, had almost fixed this problem. You know, if we really look at it with an unbiased eye, before President Trump, once he was actually officially elected and before he actually stepped foot into the White House, all we saw was reports of border crossings going down to their lowest levels ever. And that's because they understood who was about to uh, take power in the White House, and he was a man of his word. So as a congressman, once elected, I will absolutely introduce insulation, uh, legislation to make uh, to stay in Mexico policy permanent. I will also be one of the leaders in making sure we continue to put the pressure and maximize the pressure on on countries like Mexico, on South American countries that continuously let their citizens come up and cross our border illegally, and to make sure we start to once and for all fix this problem. And the only way we can do that is by electing America First candidates that actually care about this issue and understand the ramifications of it. You know, what is coming across the border, not only just the illegal immigration, human trafficking, drug trafficking, and fentanyl now is no longer the number one drug. There's a new one, two new ones out. One is called Pyro, but they're all directly linked to China. So China is trying yeah. to destroy us economically, intellectually, yeah. and now going after the actual population by giving us poisonous drugs that look exactly like regular over-the-counter medicine. And you may not know that you're taking a counterfeit medicine at all. You're thinking you may be taking a Percocet or something. But it's not. It is actually either pyro or fentanyl in disguise or one other drug. But we're running out of time. People can find you at your website, which is Darius Mayfield for America, and help you win your seat in New Jersey District 12. Yes, ma'am. That's Darius Mayfield for America, and that's for F-O-R dot com. You guys can go in there and donate. You guys can go in there and volunteer and yeah, it really just is sad uh, what we're watching, what we're witnessing. And you're absolutely right. We're at a point where we're almost at the point of no return. So that's why it's so important that this November you actually vote in strong America first people. I know we like to look at some of our leaders now as strong or they like to cast themselves as strong, but you can tell by what they're doing and what they're allowed, allowing to happen to our country that they're not very strong. And the reason that some of these things are happening, whether it's at the border or what's going on with China, is because they've been in office for so long that a lot of these people are bought and paid for at the end of the day. I come from the freest generation to ever walk this earth. There will probably be things that I say and do that the typical political consultant will advise me not to. But I don't know any better because we know nothing but unabated strength, unabated freedom, and that's how we will govern and move forward going forward. So please vote in these America First candidates. Understand who you're voting for. Know their issues and vote for people that are unafraid to tell the absolute truth at the end of the day. Well, Darius, I wish you a lot of luck. I still have a lot of family in Monmouth County. Uh, So God bless you and good luck. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for having me. Take care. Take care, care, guys. Darius Mayfield, New Jersey District 12 is what he's running for. You can find him at Darius Mayfield for America.
I want to welcome the next victim in into our studio. We were hoping to have him last week, but we had some telephone difficulties. But he is here with us today, Harlan Ullman, and he has a new book out, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Become the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. He's also a senior advisor for the Atlantic Council. Good afternoon, Harlan. How are you today? Annie, I am the furthest thing from a victim you will ever find, but I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> uh, you have a great book out, and you break down something that we all have suspected but never knew exactly how to describe it. And we have gone through watching all these disruptions to our society but you actually put a name to it, and it is now the massive attacks of disruption, MAD. Absolutely. And I also characterize the fifth horseman to join the four horsemen of the biblical apocalypse in delivering massive attacks of disruption. And they can be huge in terms of COVID-19 that has caused more Americans to die than we lost in every war we fought on the battlefield since 1775, or indeed <laughs> the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, whether that's justified or not, is another example of a massive attack of disruption. Think about what that's doing to our political society. So we have to understand these are the major threats. Well, you, you write in your book that this is a greater threat than Russia or China. Yes, But I want to pose a, a question to you, though, because we see, sure. as we see these massive acts of dis- disruption, uh, like, example, uh, the influx of the cartel with human trafficking and drug trafficking, and we know we can trace a lot of it to China. Uh, we saw the Antifa uh, uprisings, and we know that China has been working with uh, Islamic jihadists, uh, to take down America. We know China has also infiltrated our government, our businesses. Wouldn't you say that they are also a cause of many of these massive acts of disruption here in the United States? Should we then say it's not just the massive acts of destruction, but it's who's behind them? No, I think we've exaggerated greatly the Chinese threat. And what you get is a lot of propaganda that is uninformed. Um, same thing about Russia. Look, I probably know a great deal more about Russia and China than most people, and we've exaggerated the threat, just as we did with the Soviet Union. The real issues are we have a government that's broken, we have a political system that's hugely divided, and the biggest problem we face is making democracy work. That does not discount the issues from Russia and China. They are problems, but I believe we've exaggerated their dangers, and I think we need to deal with the problems we have at home first. Now, you're right in there that the disruptions have always had great and often uh, massive impacts. Um, But you're saying that this is different from the past. Uh, How is it so different from the past where we were able to recognize the disruption and then overcome it? But there's something different today which makes these massive acts of disruption more prevalent and more harmful. I really, Annie, I really appreciate that question uh, for two reasons. One, we were never necessarily good in dealing with them. But what makes the difference today is that as societies have become more advanced, societies have become more fragile and vulnerable. 
for example, if people lose their internet, their cell phones, water, these have hugely massive, massive effects. And you take a look across America today, where, for example, the Colorado River is now the Colorado Creek. If you went to Yosemite a month ago, you couldn't get in because it was underwater. Now you can't get in because it's on fire. And so my point is, societies, as they become more uh, advanced, become more sensitive and vulnerable to disruptions. And so what happened 20 or 30 years ago would not be as powerful as it would be today. Well, you compare what happened uh, in 1918 to 1920 with the Spanish flu. Right. And then you, then you talk about the coronavirus. And our reaction right. back in 1918 to 20 was drastically, drastically different than what our attitude and reaction is today. And why no, is no, that? Where we were able to, to... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it wasn't. Sorry, it was not. I mean, look, if you take Woodrow... First of all, we were fighting a world war. Big difference. But second, Woodrow Wilson, even though he contracted the Spanish flu, denied that it existed. We had the same difficulties with masks. Some people would wear them. Some people would not. Similarly with quarantine. Obviously, one of the biggest differences then, pharmaceutical capacity and science, to be able to come up with cures. But the nation reacted in many ways in terms of panic and divisions as it has today. So there are many similarities which we ignore. And the question I would pose to your listeners, Annie, what are we doing to prepare for COVID-20, 21, 22, 23? And the answer is not very much. Well, one of the things you write about is that, about the vaccinations. Um, right. Now, you, you are for a vaccine mandate, as I understand it? Uh, yeah, well, I wouldn't put it like quite a mandate, but I think people should get vaccinations, absolutely. And then what about those of us for either religious or medical reasons cannot be vaccinated? Well, if you give a legitimate uh, medical reasons, I think that's fine. But look, I'll give you two examples. In New York City in 1947, smallpox hit, one person was killed, and in the space of two months, six million New Yorkers were vaccinated. There was no question of whether people would be vaccinated or not. And second, polio. I grew up in an era with polio, and Jonas Salk and the Salk vaccine uh, gave the cure, and parents would die to get their children inoculated. So if you have legitimate and I mean really legitimate religious reasons, I, I can understand that, or if they're medical reasons, but they should be few and far between because a lot of those reasons, certainly in terms of uh, some of the notions about where the vaccines come from, I think are ill-informed. But as we dealt with polio and smallpox, you bet we need to have massive vaccines, and if there are reasons for exclusions, I agree, but they should be few and far between. Well, you know, having had an uncle who contracted polio after getting the polio shot, uh, there's, there's a lot of debate that would I would love to have with you at another time on that one. Um, yeah, the, yeah, but the science, look, quite frankly, the science is very real. If you were inoculated with a vaccine, the chances of getting polio were slim and none. Now we see polio reasserting itself, and lots of young people have not been vaccinated. And whether the whole issue of a vaccination becomes really one of, that takes political uh, priority will remain to be seen. But if you got a vaccination, you were not going to get polio, except in extremely rare circumstances when you probably were pre-infected. Well, 
Well, that's, like I said, that would be a debate for another time. Uh, what I like about your book is that you have in it a reader's guide where you break down, you say what is in the different chapters so people, as they read it, know what to expect. Um, yeah. But you talk about a fifth horseman. Now, as I understand in Revelations, the fifth horseman is actually Jesus Christ returning. Yes, there's going to be a massive war. He's carrying a sword, which is the will of God. But you're depicting the fifth horseman as something bad. That, well, I depict the fifth horseman as the uh, follow-on to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and not something far mm-hmm. different. In this particular case, that massive attacks of disruption combined all the weapons of the other four horsemen in terms of pestilence, war, damage, uh, and destruction into one concept, which are massive attacks of disruption, which we see going on right now. Look, major problems around the world, and we can talk about China and Russia because I think those can be handled much more sensibly, and I don't think that American administrations, Republican and Democrat, have really done that as sensibly as they should. But my point is that you take a look at, at the scarcity of food, water, energy around the world. These are hugely debilitating, and they're causing local crises. You take a look at inside the United States, and our political system is fractured. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, in the old days you could disagree. Now you believe the other side is evil. And so it's going to be very difficult to overcome these differences. And clearly if the Republicans are going to win a majority in the Congress next November, and that's still a question that remains to be seen, um, you can imagine the reprisals that the Republicans are going to take in terms of what they think the Democrats did to them. That's not the way a democracy or a republic should work, but that's where the nature of our politics are. And quite frankly, if the situations were reversed, you would see the same outcomes. We are in huge, huge trouble. The system is not working Americans are suffering. We are losing our way internationally. Our influence is declining. Our enemies are taking great advantage of what they see are huge weaknesses. Whatever you may believe about January 6th or the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, this is being used by our enemies and our adversaries to show how America is in complete disrepair and uncontrolled. And quite frankly, that propaganda that's being produced is very compelling and lots of people outside this country look at that. They may have reasons to dislike America because of our arrogance and hubris, the fact that we caused a lot of wars that we started, like Vietnam, Afghanistan, and the second Iraq war, and people resent us that is hurting us overseas. And because it is, our influence is waning. Therefore, our ability to look after our own safety, security, and prosperity is being diminished, and this will hurt every American irrespective of which political party you belong to or whether you belong to no political party. Well, you know, you, you, you talk about a centric Westphalian system uh, and that right. it's being destroyed. Exactly what is that so our listeners can understand? That's a really good question, Ann, and, and you've, you've done your homework and read the book, and I'm really grateful that you understand <laughs> it. In 1648, uh, the long wars in Europe were settled with what was called the Westphalian Solution. And what the Westphalian solution was to make international politics a function of states. That is to say, states ultimately controlled the use of force. They were the sovereign entities that controlled international politics. And that worked up until basically 2001 with September 11th. And after September 11th, you had individuals and you had 
other small groups such as al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden who can make profound differences in the international community, certainly by their attacks. Now, you can argue that always existed in, on, January, on, on June 28, 1914. Uh, the lone gunman killed um, the, uh, the Duke of, uh, of Austria-Hungary and his pregnant wife causing World War I. So these things happen. But right now you have the ability of individuals and non-state actors to make huge acts of disruption, cyber, terrorism, you name it. And so the Westphalian system that was dominated by states no longer exists, and it's a new, much more complicated, and in many ways dangerous environment. Well, are you th- thinking then that globalization is eventually inevitable? Of course. Look, globalization is inevitable because now that countries have to be interdependent with each other. Americans like to think that we could be energy independent. That's crazy. We can never be fully energy independent, even though we produce enough energy for our own needs, because other countries cannot. And we're trading. We are dependent upon global trade and intercourse, for example, for chips, for resources, for many things. We're selling our products. And so if that system is broken down, then America will suffer. So there's always going to be globalization, which has positive and negative means. A small example. A huge ship goes aground in the Suez Canal early this year, and all of a sudden the supply chain is interrupted. We have to understand that these are, new, these are new vulnerabilities that have been created by technology and globalization for which we need to react, which we can do and prepare for. Globalization is not the enemy. The problem is that we're not dealing with the consequences of globalization positively and negatively, which reflects that our government is not providing the necessary solutions and policies that we need. As I said, what is our plan for COVID-21, 22? What is our energy policy? What is our immigration policy? And this critique applies not just to Republicans and Democrats, it applies to administrations going back for a very long time. We need to have much more common sense inform what we're doing. And unless or until we do that, I'm afraid our standards of living are gonna decline dramatically and the American dream is gonna be increasingly uh, elusive and I go into chapter and verses, you know, in my book about how we can fix this. Right, it is. And because you do say that, you know, um, massive attacks of disruption or MAD does not respect borders or boundaries, nor does it distinguish between domestic or international politics. Uh, so what may take place in Podunk, Indiana, uh, with the massive Absolutely. act of disruption can ripple across the globe. But we never in the past viewed any form of disruption like that as a major threat. But you're saying, yes, you better take a really good hard look at this right now. The world, whether we like it or not, is interconnected in ways that has never been in the past. And small events in one place will have extraordinary implications elsewhere. And if we, are, if we use common sense and judgment, we can deal with that. This is no longer the 20th century. And a lot of our ideas are smacking of the 20th century and they no longer exist. Look, our military strategy is to contain, deter, and if war comes, defeat China and Russia. That's nonsensical. We've not contained or deterred China or Russia. Otherwise, Russia would not have gone into Ukraine. And if we're thinking about fighting a war with China with a population of 1.4 billion people and nuclear weapons, that is insanity. What we need to do is understand that we need a new framework in which what I call for dangerous coexistence, 
we have to coexist not only with friends but potential adversaries, realizing that if we don't, the adverse situation is going to affect everybody. This is a new mindset in which America not be dominant, but Americans have to realize that for us to enhance our standard of living and our prosperity, we've got to work more with people, even those we oppose in terms of ideas. And that, unfortunately, is an idea that has not really been able to generate itself across the country, but that's what we need to do. This is no longer 1945, and America that is a superpower, super economic power that strides the globe like a colossus. Even though our absolute strength may be increasing, our relative strength has visibly the rest of the world, and we need to learn to live with that and, more importantly, exploit that. If we are a capitalist entrepreneurial society, society, this is to our advantage. Competition means that we're going to be more productive and more efficient, and it should really harness our better angels, and unfortunately it's not doing that right now. Well, you talk about seven disruptors of, of MAD. Right. And you, you, you say right now we're stuck in the mindset of Cold War 2.0, and we've got to get out of that mindset and look at these seven disruptors. But one of the first ones you talk about is the U.S. Constitution and what the problem is exactly with that at that point, because our Constitution is the foundation upon which we're built and you pull the bricks out from that, and our nation will fall. But 51% of us are at war with the rest. Well, what I actually say is that the biggest disruptor we face among the seven is failed and failing government. And what massive attacks of disruption has done is to attack the very basis of our Constitution and checks and balances. Look, the only way the Constitution works is if at least one of three conditions exist. First, one party has veto-proof majority on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and five votes in the Supreme Court. That has never happened, even under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Second, we have a crisis like Pearl Harbor that unites a divided nation. Instead, we had COVID, as I said, who killed more Americans than we lost in World War II, and it divides the nation. Or third, we have civility and compromise, which is now lacking in Congress. So the Constitution is a great risk. Now, the only way we can repair that, because we're not going to change the Constitution, as Thomas Jefferson said we should do once a generation, we've got to make that government work. That means both sides, Republicans and Democrats, have got to move more to the center. And if they don't, then government will continue to fail. We're going to get bad legislation that's not going to attend to the nation's needs. And in the future, uh, that is going to be far grimmer right now because that future is not going to be able to deal not only with failed and failing government, but with the other disruptions, such as climate change, social media, cyber, <clears throat> terror, which is becoming far more domestic, debt, which has increased up to $30 trillion, and think what happens with the interest payments, and drones, uh, for example, what happens when drones become commonly used for virtually everything, including protecting people. This is a disruptor that we haven't even considered yet, which could be really game-changing. So we need to think about the future and do it with common sense. And quite frankly, Republicans and Democrats, White Houses, no matter who the president happens to be, are not doing this. And the nation will be at greater risk until we understand the world is far different. I'm not arguing for Republicans or Democrats. What I'm arguing for is that the world has changed and the United States has not recognized that. We need to wake up and take action to make sure that the future for generations is going to be at least as good as the past was for us. And that's not happening in my judgment. And a huge majority of Americans agree with that. 75% or more of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. That has not happened 
in a very, very long time. And we have to understand that is a significant warning. Well, is that something good for us, that we're now saying, all right, we recognize our country is going in the wrong direction, and doesn't that mean that we're now willing to work to put it back in the right direction? No, because neither political party is prepared to do that. The Republicans are being driven by Trump, the Trumpists, and the so-called Republicans that would include Lincoln, Eisenhower, um, and Reagan will have been driven out of the Trump political party, and the Democrats are being driven by the progressive left whose ideas are just as out of balance. The majority of Americans are center-left, center, or center-right, and they are not being adequately represented in government, unfortunately. And until we move back to the center where civility and compromise can be established, we are in tough times. In the old days, parties could disagree with each other, but now each party considers the other party as evil. That is a recipe for disaster. We cannot view the political system as evil, and the longer we do, the more danger we're going to create for ourselves. Well, you know, you said it's the, the Trumpers are a problem, but under Trump, he was securing our, our borders. He was making us a strong nation, standing up against Russia. They wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if Trump was there. They kept China at bay kept the terrorists at bay, uh, he was looking at that as, as, as yeah, coexistence, we, we'll work with you, you know, we'll do trade with you, but you have to understand it's America first and we're going to protect ourselves. Wasn't he on the right track with that? No, look, look I have criti- I've been critical of, of every president going back to Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam for different reasons. Trump was a disaster because of his personality and character. Some of his policies were good, but he could not execute. He had made any number of catastrophic decisions from withdrawing from Afghanistan. He was the one who arranged the agreement with the Taliban that led to the catastrophe that took place last year. He withdrew for the joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran. And let me make a statement here because people who will criticize his agreement, I'm going to make something that is absolutely true. If all parties, including Iran, agreed, and you can argue Iran would not, to that JCPOA, Iran would never, I'm going to say, never get a nuclear weapon. Now, you can say Iran would not agree, but we were far safer then under the JCPOA than we are right now, where Iran appears to be on the brink of being able to get nuclear weapons. And there are many other areas. Look, Trump had some very good ideas. He wanted to rattle things. But Trump was untruthful. Uh, his character was entirely flawed. Uh, he, he couldn't really trust him to do anything. In many ways, he trusted Putin more than the intelligence community. And the damage he did by virtue of his personality and his conduct of office has done irreparable damage. Now, I'm not excusing other presidents because, as I said, I was enormously critical of George W. Bush over the Iraq invasion, which was not necessary. We knew, or some of us knew, there were no weapons of mass destruction. Obama made huge mistakes with pivots and red lines and other things. I do not agree with your assessment of, 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 of Donald Trump, because whereas some of the ideas he had were sound, and I think rattling up the bureaucracy was good, he was incapable of executing them because he was never a guy who was a manager. He was a real estate entrepreneur and salesman, and that did not work. Having said that, I had great hopes for Joe Biden. But Joe Biden is making a mess of this presidency for a lot of reasons. And it gets back to the situation 
where we need to be able to have government that's working and government appears not to be working, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, and that is bad for the nation. Well, I, I will definitely disagree on, on well, your assessment you of, of Joe Biden because um, he proved as a senator that he was weak. You, yeah, yeah. Was, um, I, I said Joe Biden, what, would you disagree with you? you? think Joe Biden is not making a mess of things? I said he's making oh, he a mess of things. Oh, he is making a mess, but you said you, said That's you what had I said. hope. But you had hope. I did have hope. Uh, I never had hope for him. I, never. Oh, that's fine. You were flipping right. We all had hopes for Donald Trump and Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And those hopes, in many ways, were dashed. Well, um, the book is, is extremely interesting, and you put up a lot of great premises. But you also say that you know globalization does have a dark side. I mean, we are to the point where our world is interconnected uh, because of our technologies and our trade. Uh, yes. But if we're not careful, it's a large slippery slope there. Absolutely, and my point is that we're not exercising common sense. I mean, I, I am so critical of our government not to come up with sensible strategies. I mean, for example, take energy. We're going to build all these electrical vehicles. Okay, fine. Where's the electricity coming from? Good, any thank idea? you. <laughs> thank you. Okay. We have no immigration policy. Why not? We have no economic policy. I mean, and this applies to administrations. I mean, this is crazy. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that? I just ironically read the Russian new maritime strategy that it just came out with. And I have to say it is a powerfully well-argued, articulate document that I wish that our Navy would follow. And I ask these questions. What is our policy for COVID-19 2021? What is our policy for protecting our uh, necessary uh, supply lines so that we can be able to be, be able to use products what is it? What is our policy for research and development? What is our policy for education? What is our policy for health care and research and development? We don't have them. We have aspirations. Why not? Any company that acted this way, the CEO would be immediately fired by shareholders if it were a public company. Yet we do this over administration after administration. And a lot of the stuff we get is nonsense. When you take a look at the national security strategy, we're going to, as I said earlier, we're going to contain, deter, and defeat Russia and China if there's a war. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. We're existing in a period of dangerous coexistence when we have to realize what we want to do is to prevent crises. We want to make resolution where we can and put in place guidelines to prevent these things getting out of hand. But we don't seem to want to do that. And this is unfortunately endemic to successive administrations just not the last one of the current Well, you know, there's one spot that you really had me frightened when you talk about the line of succession of the presidency. And you did a supposition like, for example, if the president yes. became incapacitated with COVID and then the vice president, and you go down, and I'm, I'm thinking, yes. oh, my goodness. We had yes. that uh, the uh, designated survivor TV show, and it, it made yes. me think of that. We don't have the designated survivor, it looks like. Well, we do in terms of the presidential success. Look, um, let me say the two most dangerous words in the, in the American language right now are President Harris. Then you get Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi is 92. The president pro tem of the Senate um, is Senator Leahy, who's sort of 85, and he's retiring because of age. And then you go down to cabinet members from the Secretary of State, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
our government is a gerontocracy. How old are the Democrats and the Republicans who are running, who are running this country? These are old people. And that's fine. I mean, I'm old, too. But I think it's time for some new blood. And quite frankly, we do not see any new blood emerging from either Republicans or Democrats. It could be in 2024, you have an 82-year-old Joe Biden running against a 78-year-old Donald Trump. That, to me, just based on age and actuarial statistics, is a dangerous situation. Well, Harlan, people can find your book up on Amazon, and if they're listening to the yeah. show in the archives, they can just click on it, The Fifth Horseman and The New Mad. Uh, they can also find you at The Hill, where you have numerous articles up there, including America's New Era of Dangerous Coexistence that you wrote just last week. Uh, you write about cybersecurity, national security, judiciary. You got, you're all over the place. So people can find your work up there also. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope people will go and get your book. Annie, thank you. You asked great questions, and this is a great conversation because it's apolitical. It's about the future of our country, and it cannot be dominated by party politics or partisan politics. That's what's killing us. Well, thank you very much, Harlan, and God bless you for the hard work you do. Thank you. All right. Check out Harlan Ullman and his book up on Amazon. We'll bring in our next victim onto the show, uh, Derek Kinney, and he also has a new book out called Good Money Revolution, How to Make More Money to Do More Good. He's also the CEO of Good Money Framework and host of the very popular Good Money Podcast. Good afternoon, Derek, and how are you today? Annie, it's great to be with you today. It's a great Friday, and I'm sure glad to be spending time with you. TGIF Friday. Cocktail hour coming up soon. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, you are the money man. And I'm going to just say, build back better the Inflation Reduction Act and just let you go. Well, there you go. You know, the, the, the title itself really says it all. And, uh, you know, I, I hearken back to, I think it was last month, Annie, when CNN, which we know what side of the aisle they're on, talks about 26% of Americans trust in Joe Biden's ability to manage the economy. And that was troubling <laughs> to me because, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's really telling the American people that you're just flat not smart and you can't figure this out. And so for the Democrats to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, it's very oxymoronic. And I just think Americans are smarter than that. They, they can see through the fact that it was Democratic policies, it was Democratic ideology that really led us to this point, and it certainly will not be that same ideology that leads us back out. And what is in that bill is anything but a reduction in the inflation. In fact, it's going to cut back on our health care. It's going to throw us even further into the recession that we're already in, and it's going to bankrupt America if we're not already bankrupt. Well, that's exactly right. And my fear is that people lose hope, and we can't afford to lose that. You know, one thing that we know is right now we had good news you know, earlier this week that inflation has ticked down a bit. But I guarantee you, Annie, here's what we're about to see in the next 30 to 60 days. The Democratic campaigns will say, look, we brought inflation down. We brought gas prices down. Vote for us. 
And the Republicans will wisely say, look, it was you who caused inflation in the first place and you who doubled the price of gas. And I just think that people need to see through these things. But the bottom line is, you know, what I think about on a Friday today, you know, kind of a planning time for me is there's so much about the general economy. We hear every day about jobs and unemployment and inflation. And for the hardworking American listening right now that wants to put food on the table for their kids or buy their kid the extra backpack for their new school year or, or they go to a job every day they don't even like, they can easily get caught up in the vitriol of the news cycle. And what I want to do is empower people and say, look, you can either choose to just get sucked in to all the negativity that's out there. There's, it's just overwhelming. Or you can say, you know what, what can I do right now? whether I work in a job, whether I own the company, whether I'm retired or want to work part-time, where I can make more money so that I have more control over my life. But it's not just about making more money because we know once you make a certain amount, the happiness doesn't increase the more your bank account increases. But what happens is if you can give it to causes you care about, well, now you're making more money and you're helping make a difference in your community and now you're actually making an impact. So the, the rest of the world can do what it's going to do, but then you can take control of your situation and actually make an impact. And when your head hits the pillow at night, you have lived a life and a day of meaning and fulfillment. You know, it's funny you say it that way because they have proven that people that are more generous and give to good causes live happier, healthier, and emotionally stable lives than those who are stingy. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was just looking. I've got a talk this coming week up in Denver, and I was putting the final touches on it uh, right before you called. And, you know, in the Mayo Clinic, which we would think of a very reputable uh, medical place, talked about how people who are generous, people who care give, people who do something for other people live longer, they live healthier, and it's not just the fact that if you have more money, you have better health care. We know that, but it's the ancillary benefits that how your brain works, how your heart feels when you give. And I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick story. So in my book, Good Money Revolution, I talk about some of the research, and you know, they, they put some people in a room and had them watch TV commercials. Okay, So when they saw like a car commercial or they saw a, just a regular ad, the brain processed it, didn't do anything with it, just kind of moved on. But – when the advertisement had a giving component to it, for example, whether it was support the Olympic team or help make the world better or you know, help uh, take care of homelessness or, or provide food for people, there was a chemical in the brain that mimicked, get this, looking into the eyes of someone you love. And what that showed us was it's much like when you spend time with your very favorite person in the world, just how much fun that is and and the endorphins that get released, that's how the brain responds when you give. And so it makes sense then to think that, wow, if I like to give, but I've been told money is bad. You know, people say if you have money, you're bad, and if you like money, you're even really bad. Well, what if we change the narrative and say go make money because bad people with more money do bad things with the money, but good people with more money do good things with it. So I want to empower the good people listening to make more good money, to do the good they want. I mean, that's how we counter all the negativity coming from Washington is just be able to say, hey, I made a difference in what I could control in my personal world today. And that's powerful. 
That is. That is. But what about there's a person who has, they're comfortable. They don't need to go out and make more money, but they do want to do good. How would you address it? Someone that just, I don't care if I make more money. Yeah, I think the, the principles work the same way. One of the parts of my book in Good Money Revolution I talk about, let's say, for example, somebody is retired, they're on a comfortable fixed income, or they, they, they just don't have a motivation to go make more money, but they've always wrestled with sort of what I call this clenched fist uh, hold back, and that is I just want to hold on to what I've got. I don't want to give it away. And, and for some people, doing that can be hard. What we know is that if you have more money or more opportunities, it just makes you more of who you already are. But for somebody who wants to give but doesn't know where to start, I would ask yourself one question. That is, what is a cause that you care deeply about that bothers you? Like as you begin to, to walk around in the course of your day as you're driving, when you see a homeless person, does that bother you? Or when you see someone who doesn't have enough food, does that really cause you to be angry and say, that's not right. Or when you see maybe a student who has potential but doesn't have the money for that first semester of junior college, do you say to yourself, that's, that's just wrong. I want to do something. So if there's that tug in your heart, I think that's the place to do it. But don't think, and let me be real clear on this, Annie. So many people think, I've got to give a million dollars. I've got to give a thousand dollars. I've got to give a hundred dollars. You can give five dollars. You could give $25. The amount doesn't matter. It's what you do with it and your intent because we've seen major causes crowdfunded where everybody gave a dollar or five dollars. So don't think that you have to wait to give until you have a lot of money. Start giving with smaller amounts now because if you do have more money down the road, it just makes you more of who you already are. It's, it's funny because last year I was a full-time caregiver to my husband who passed away a year ago, as well as my mother. So I had dueling walkers, dueling doctors, dueling nurses. So don't be sorry. You know, he's out of pain and he's happy and he's in the arms of Jesus, I like to say. Um, So as a caregiver, I can understand, and and it can be stressful, but sometimes you have to take a step back and and know that you love these people that you're caring for and you want to do what's best for them. Uh, But I'm, I'm... thinking that I have to get myself over to my church because we have a backpack drive because school year's starting. And, you know, I picked up a backpack from the church and I filled it, you know, because they give you a list, a shopping list of everything they need. And I threw some extra things in there. So I got the backpack I got to drop off. We'll go to a needy area in the neighborhood and give them to kids for school so they have school supplies. But we also have a women's uh, clinic to help promote uh, choice, you know, pro-life. And mm-hmm. I got a couple of checks. I got that into the little baby bottle. So I got to give that to the church. <laughs> and then in the interim, I've been helping a friend out who's been down and out in the luck. I'm thinking, wait a minute. And I'm that person that's on that fixed pension too. <laughs> <laughs> so I must well, be the Anna, happiest person Anna, in the world. Something with you. Today is actually, I wasn't going to say this, but you mentioned my father passed away two years ago today. And, and I say that because my, my dad was the kind of guy who wanted to do more with his life, but he just he wasn't able to reach that point. But he, what he did and how it impacted me was he told me something when I was a kid, and I think about it every day. He said, Derek, remember, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And even though my dad wasn't the model of 
giving or making a lot of money, he encouraged me to do that, and it didn't let himself be held back by his own ability. So what I would say to people, just like you're doing right now, even if you feel like, I don't have money to give, I don't have time to give, you can be an encourager with your words to encourage those other people. So don't feel like because you're not successful yourself or someone listening doesn't feel like, well, I've made tons of mistakes, you can still be an encourager to people, especially right now. And in my book, Good Money Revolution, that's one of the principles of wherever you're at right now, what is your next money move, I call it, whether that's I want to give a dollar, I want to give five dollars, I want to help my neighbor next door. And one of my guests on my podcast one time said, Derek, so many people think when they think about changing the world, it's got to be this grandiose plan. He said, just simply start by walking across the street. You know, in your local community, there's needs, and if we take action, we can literally change the entire makeup of our local community. You know, it's funny uh, because July 4th, which is my mom's birthday, uh, we had a, what we called, I called a mini block party. And right. we had it okay. on my back porch. And I got the neighbors all from around. And some of them knew each other, some of them didn't, and introduced them. So now we've got a whole section of the block where people know each other. And the other day, yeah. my neighbor came across and she goes, I haven't seen your car in the driver. Are you okay? Everything all right? And I'm thinking, oh, wow. God, bless this woman. You know, I'm looking out for them, and they're looking out for me. Uh, so I had made some brandy peaches, so I got to drop that off to her this afternoon. <laughs> and, Annie, what I would do, see, I would place that, just like I talk about in my book, as that's part of what's called the people portfolio. So, so many people think about if I'm going to invest my money, it's got to be in stocks and bonds and mutual funds and real estate or cryptocurrency, whatever it may be. But a, a part of the portfolio that I find never, ever loses value. If I were to say, would you like an investment that only grows and never loses value, you'd say, well, sure. Well, that's people portfolio. Those are the people, the handful of people that you choose that you're going to invest in. You're going to have not just a, a casual acquaintance, but it might be a younger person. It might be an older person. It might be somebody that you see their potential, and you're the potential extractor. You're the one in their life that can forget about all their past mistakes. You see them as who they are and who they want to be, and you help them get there. And there's nothing more rewarding than, than building a long list of people, portfolio members that you have invested in, whether it be your words, your encouragement, your actions, your money, helping make their life better. What we know is that's how to live a life of meaning and fulfillment. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Well, you know, I had not gotten your book. Unfortunately, Bridget uh, booked you with me just last minute, unfortunately. So what I do need to do is read it and have you come back on. Um, but you have to send me a signed copy. <laughs> Otherwise, I well, won't I, read it. <laughs> and by the way, Annie, for your, for your listeners, um, we want to get this message into as many people's hands as possible. It did hit the bestseller list. Now, I was very humbled by that, but the message is resonating People can go to goodmoneychapters.com, that's goodmoneychapters.com, goodmoneychapters.com, and download the first five chapters of the book completely for free. Mm. But I want to read the whole thing. <laughs> I'm greedy. Yeah, so I'll get your address <laughs> offline, and I will send you an autographed copy, and I'm happy to do that. All right, because uh, she had suggested a couple of questions, and that's why I'm just – I'm going off the top of my head, as you can tell. Um, sure. 
because I do have a friend of mine who's been looking for a job, but because of his age, it's it's very difficult. Uh, that is is a problem there. So, how would you suggest to someone like that to overcome that problem? Well, there's a couple things. Do you know Do you know how old the person is, or kind of what they're what they're looking for? They're in their seventies. Okay. So obviously, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Many employers uh, have had age issues in the past. They they see somebody 70, but what I find is more and more because there's such a lack, and I don't mean this as a slam on people, but I'm just going to, I like to shoot straight. There's such a lack of generational responsibility these days that when employers see someone 70, even older, with experience that can relate to people well, that can manage people well, that has a sense of life experience, they're more likely to hire them. Now, what they've got to do, though, is how can that 70-year-old package their skills in a way that an employer sees as relevant? And so that's where I think people get hung up is they've got this entire breadth of experience and whatever they're good at, how can they position that where it fits in. And what I find, one, there's a couple universal things that are very uh, open right now, and that is managing younger people. You know, managing groups of people, these millennials, these Generation Zs that want to be the CEO on day number two, and, and helping guide them and lead them and manage them is a skill that companies are in desperate, desperate need of. Now, having said that, let's say the 70 year old person. Like, I don't really want to work for a company. I want to do my own thing. What I would then ask them to think about would be, is there a problem that they see themselves or find themselves solving on a regular basis? For example, do their friends, their family, their former coworkers ask them to do something, whether it's plan a trip for them, design a website, proofread something, organize something, uh, fix something? Is there something that they find themselves doing a lot that people trust them to do, and then could that then be expanded from either a side job to a full-time job or doing that for someone else's company, but it's because you love doing it and people have affirmed that you're good at it. So I like to make things easy, not overcomplicate them, but just write down your set of skills and see how could these be relevant today or how could they be relevant to launch my own side hustle or which could lead to working for someone else doing what I like to do. Well, people have a mindset sometimes that keep them from making cash. Uh, So how do they overcome these mindsets? Well, one of the things I write about in my book, Good Money Revolution, is bad money beliefs. And I'm going to share a story with you. I was in the office on a Saturday morning catching up on a couple things, and I saw my voicemail light blinking. And I, I pressed the button, and to my shock was a frantic woman's voice. And she said, Derek, and this was a client of mine, she said, Derek, you have to call me back. Something terrible has happened. And she went on to tell me that she bounced a check, which she didn't move money from her savings to checking, got a notice in the mail, the check bounced, was going to be charged for it. But the kicker was, she said, Derek, they're going to send me to jail. Well, my gosh, Annie, when I heard that, I, I was like, okay, I can't wait till Monday to return this call. I've got to call her back right now. So I called her back, and she said, thanks for calling me back. And I said, tell me what happened. She said, well, it was an innocent mistake. I, I wrote a check. I forgot to move money from my one account to cover it here, and now they're going to send me to jail. And I said, okay, first of all, 
we can call the bank together on Monday. We can move the money over, take care of that, but why in the world do you think they're going to send you to jail? So she tells me this story when she was seven years old. She overheard her dad receive a phone call, and he had also bounced a check, but it was buying school supplies for her and her sisters. And the store owner said, you bounce a check, I'm going to send the police over there, and I'm going to send you to jail. So this seven-year-old girl grew up, she's now 55 years old, thinking that and believing if you bounce a check, you're going to go to jail. Well, what this revealed to me, it was shocking the fact that this came to life. But what I realized was that over the past 10 years we worked together, she was always reserved, always hesitant to take advantage of any investment opportunity. And here's what happened. Because of this issue and because we were able to talk through it, she began to realize that she had held on to this false money belief her entire life. Within six months, Annie, get this, she got promoted, got a $20,000 a year raise, and she began making more money because she was investing based on what she was comfortable with, not because she didn't want to lose everything. So that's more of a drastic example, but let's say somebody grew up and their, their mom or dad or their grandparents you know, would bang their fist on the kitchen table and say, if only we had more money, or the worst of all is if they were to say, you know, in life, there's the haves and the have-nots, and we're in the have-not family, and that's just how it goes. And so they might grow up thinking that there's a number on their head that they can't get above. Or someone might have told them, you know what, you're not worth anything, or you're only going to make $50,000 your whole career. You're going to be a failure. And they might have internalized that. I mean, what I find is even successful people, when you pull back the onion layers, have something inside them that may be holding them back that until now, until reading this book or hearing this conversation, reminds them, oh, that bully in the 12th grade said this to me and I've held that, and they just kind of dodged it, but it's important for them to address it to really achieve their full potential financially. Derek, what? this is the co-host. Yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, I know some people like that. They they have these um, thoughts that were planted in their heads. Mm, Either they were yes. told these things or they overheard it, and they go through life believing it. And um, I, I sometimes think that's what the, the school system should be teaching our kids instead of yes. some of the things they are, you know, how to, like, balance a check and, and, and maybe consequences of writing a bad check or something like that or not moving money. You know, I, I see where our school system should be more proactive in um, teaching kids life skills. What are your they thoughts? used to do that. They used to yeah. do that, but the woke culture took it out. You know what? I uh, I knew I'd love being on your station here. You, you are spot <laughs> on because there's so much emphasis now on, and, and don't get me wrong. We need to have science. We need to have math, social studies. All those things are important, but... I like to ask, how can the school system better prepare our men and women to succeed right away? In my own uh, children's school locally here in Arlington, Texas, I started what was called a business club, and it was teaching life skills. It was, it was looking the students in the eyeballs to see how can you shake hands, how can you build rapport, learning how to smile, how to say hello, how to build rapport with your friend's parents that you want to avoid when you see them at Target and you run down the aisle 
Instead, go up to them and say, hey, how are you, Mr. and Mrs. Smith? It's great to see you because you want to build relationships where they know you, like you, trust you. But so mm-hmm. many kids, and, and get this, and you may know this, but I was shocked to find this out, that more and more of this generation today, their first job is when they leave college. Can you imagine that, that HR people, mm-hmm. their biggest struggle is not onboarding people of how to get acclimated to the new company. It's how to hold a full-time job. I mean, I'm shocked by this, but that's the reality. And what I would say is wherever there is you know, situations like that, there, there's opportunity. And so business owners out there that are, have an entrepreneurial mindset that are listening right now that could offer training they could say, hey, I will help teach your kid and take them from school to a successful career and teach them those soft skills, teach them the financial piece. Parents pay for things that benefit their kids academically and athletically. I mean, there's huge opportunities there. So I think you, what you just said is spot dead on. Yeah, because at, at one point they taught you how to do a resume. Uh, they would teach you uh, – my, my teachers taught me to read the, uh, the stock market to understand right. a, a, a company report. Uh, when you were doing math, you were also doing accounting. So you knew how to balance the books. You know, you, you learned the basics. And you're right about being able to look them in the eye, a firm handshake, you know, how to stand there and not fidget when you're talking with someone, is a lot of social skills that today's youth are lacking. And I always say it's because we're all a disposable society and we're more involved in our devices than having an interpersonal interaction with another human being. That is so well said. And, you know, one thing I would would tell, especially parents listening right now, their son or daughter may be working at a minimum wage job. It may be the the McDonald's or the Smoothie King or whatever the local establishment is, and, and they may think that, well, I just need to act my wage. But what I would tell them is every customer that you – and do this experiment. that This has been very effective for people I've done this with. Over the next 48 hours when you go to your job, treat everyone as though they have a name tag that says, I'm a successful business owner and I'm looking for great people to hire. Okay, treat them as though they have that name tag on. Give them the best service you've ever given them. Offer to help in any way you can. One of the, uh, the young men who I, I counseled with on this worked at an academy sports here in town, and he was pretty down on his luck and didn't like going to his job. And I said, you know what, just today, this Saturday, every person you talk to, just treat them as though they are the CEO of their company and they're looking for great people to hire. And wouldn't you know, he got two job offers that day only because he raised his game, and he was like, Mr. Kinney, I, I was just nice to them, and I was helpful, and I looked him in the eye. And I said, but you've got to realize nobody else is doing that. If you do the basics, see, our society has gotten so numb to success that if you do even moderate levels of service, moderate levels of kindness to people, you will stand out. And right now there's such a – there's a need for high-quality people out there. If you're good, people will probably pay you more, and they'll hire you right away. See, I never had a problem getting a job because I guess I always had that attitude, despite what my high school guidance counselor did. Now, you've got to remember, this was the 70s, so I just dated right. myself. <laughs> and my guidance counselor 
called me in and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I'm blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, this is my advice to you. He goes, take secretarial courses and marry your boss. True story. Wow. That is exactly wow. what he said. Now, I, I got his goat. I got him back. Because okay. two years later, I was walking into the night courses, and he was the one who was running them. He goes, oh, Anne-Marie, I see that you're taking my advice and taking secretarial courses. And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss, I'm teaching one of your courses. I said, I own my wow. own business. I have 13 employees, and I have a degree in business administration, and I am teaching the course. His jaw dropped. Wow. Yeah, as it should have. Wow. 20 years old. And I walked in, and I was teaching. So, you know, wow. you have to have the right mindset. But I had a pastor visit us one day. He was, a, he was visiting for the summer, and he was teaching a youth course. And he said the biggest problem they have with kids today is they don't know interpersonal relationships. They have no, no idea no. to look you straight in the eye, to give you a firm handshake, and to talk to you in a firm, clear voice. You know, they don't even know how to fill out a job application because mommy and daddy have to walk to the kiosk with you and help you fill out the job application. Heaven forbid you have to know how to do a a, um, resume. I mean, I turned a resume into, I managed a law firm at one point. I gave the senior partner my resume, and it was an onion skin (laughs) to also date myself. And he goes, hand it back to me. He goes, this must be your only copy. And I said, no. I said, that's your copy. I have more here. <laughs> and he was yeah. flabbergasted. It's how you present yourself. And these kids don't know how to do that today. Yes. And, and Annie, I, I would, and I don't want to take a slam on all of the parents listening, but let me, let me just empower the parents listening right now because so many people have made financial mistakes. They might have max out a credit card. They might have lost a house. They might have made an investment that lost money. They might feel like, who am I to teach my kids about money or business because I haven't exactly been the model themselves? I'll tell you a story. During COVID, uh, I moved my office home to, to work out of the house here. And at dinner time, everybody was back home. We had four kids and we'd go around the table and talk about our highs and lows of the day. And but I realized, I'd say, well, Dad, how was your day? I said, oh, it was good. I did this and that. Nobody really paid much attention to me. But there were those days where I made a huge mistake. And I would, I would come down and I would say at dinner, hey, guys, uh, Dad really screwed up today. I really made a big mistake. You could have heard a pin drop, Annie. Every ear was on Dad, and I could just hear them murmuring, oh, my gosh, this is going to be good. Dad really messed up. Dad never messes up. This is going to be great. And what I realized was – I wasn't sharing my mistakes with my children. They just thought mom and dad have it all together, and that's where the gap is. As parents, we have let our children down. We need to let them know that, hey, just so you know, a great lesson is, you know, mom and I or dad and I, whoever's talking to the children, hey, you know, we, we made this decision, but, but here's what happened, and this is the lesson we learned from it. Kids love to learn from the mistakes of their parents and grandparents. So please don't think that if you make a mistake that that's bad. That can be one of the best learning tools to impact your children positively with their finances, and they'll probably never forget it. Well, Derek, it has been a pleasure to have you. We're going to have to have you definitely back on again, and I look forward to reading your book, and we'll be talking. Sounds great, Andy. This was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me today. All right. Thank you very All much. Right, and take care, sir. All right. My pleasure. Thank and you. we have 
We have our, our final victim in the, the studio here from the Heritage Foundation. He is the news producer for The Daily Signal, Doug Blair. Good afternoon, Doug. How are you today? I'm doing great, Annie. How are you doing? I mean, every day is an absolute – you must be shaking your head like, all right, what do I put up on the signal? Signal. What do, have these crazy lefts done today? Biden, Harris, what, what, what have they done? Has, has he stumbled? Was he able to put his jacket on? <laughs> you must have – you've got a plethora of things to write about. Oh, of course. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? Where, like, we're always getting to be on the offense, which is something that the Heritage Foundation loves to do. We love to fight uh, to keep Americans uh, accessing their rights and being able to sort of live free and open lives. Uh, but it is also sort of like, from a journalistic perspective, fun because the Biden administration just makes it so easy. You know, they make it so easy to make fun of them. <laughs> well, the big thing right now is the raid on Mar-a-Lago. And uh, this is a gift that keeps on giving because I think they finally realized they overstepped and they shot themselves in the foot with this one. I mean, the information that's coming out, fast and furious, pun intended, uh, is, is stunning. Absolutely. I mean, I think Americans were just shocked when they read the news. I know I was when I, when I heard that, you know, the president's private residence had been raided by the FBI. I want people to understand that this was the first time this has happened in the history of our country, in the long, long history of our country, from Washington to now. This has never happened before because I think most Americans recognize that a politically motivated body that is being sent by the political opposition to the, the private residence of most likely the person who's going to be running against him in a presidential election, that looks really bad. It looks like a banana republic. Like he's trying to find dirt on his opposition. Very similarly, might I add, to what they were accusing the former president of himself. So I think a lot of Americans recognize that this doesn't look good. The Biden administration recognizes that this doesn't look good. And we're all just kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop and see, well, if they found anything, are they going to do anything about it? You know, I was reading the timeline that the New York Post had put up in the newspaper uh, yesterday. And he was talking to – he was in negotiations. He was talking. He was turning over documents. And they asked him to secure the documents in a room and make sure it was locked, uh, which he did. And his attorneys were talking back and forth. And all of a sudden, they have to do a search warrant for documents that were already secured. And they also have to go through Melania Trump's uh, lingerie draw. Come on. Well, you know, that's where you keep when you're a nefarious, evil villain, like they seem to think that the former president is. That's where you keep all the best secrets, right, is in the underwear drawer. I mean, look, at look, Annie, this is very clearly something that the American people can see through. This is not something that's actually designed to find any new information. We've seen that the January 6th sort of show trial that they had on TV, it did not move the needle nearly as much as they wanted it to. The Democrats have been desperately trying to tie the president to any untoward behavior since he was first elected back in 2016. They have thus far failed to do so, and the president is more popular than he's ever been. I think that fact scares them, and I think they, they, they realize that they need to do something, otherwise their power and otherwise their sway is going to get taken away from them, and they must, they, they desperately want to prevent that from happening. And of all the judges, they get to sign off on the, the sealed search warrant, which they did not show the attorney, which they should have. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. They did show it to her, but 
they stood 10 feet away as if she could read it. She had Superman's x-ray vision to read the search warrant. Um, she wasn't allowed to witness whatever they removed. They did not give her a receipt for any documents or any other items they removed, which is against any any protocol. And I'm waiting to see how quickly this whole thing gets tossed out the court. But the judge they choose had ties to the Epstein debacle. Hmm. Correct. Interesting, I mean, isn't it? Yes. Yes, the, the, the fact that this judge was connected to a, a <laughs> I think we can all agree, a, rare, a very bad man, and before that he was doing all of these things, it does call into question the integrity of that investigation. But look, Annie, again, we can, we can circle the, the wagons on all of these things, and we can say, you know, this was bad behavior, this was terrible, which is absolutely true, but we need to make sure we're focusing on the future. We need to make sure we're focusing on... The, the very real attempt that Democrats are trying to do, which is poison the well behind Donald Trump. They've already been trying to do this since 2016, and they're going to continue to do it in the future, regardless of his position within uh, the Republican Party apparatus. Therefore, it's important for Americans to keep note and to say, hmm, if the media and the Democrats are trying to tell me one thing, and it turns out the facts are continuously pointing in another direction, that should mean something very specific. Well, you know, with this, Merrick Garland had his little press conference yesterday where he said a lot of words but really didn't say much of anything except that he took the blame for ordering the the raid. Um, My question earlier today was, um, is he falling on his sword to cover someone else's assets? It's a great question. I mean, the, the fact is that he admitted that he was the one that made the final call and that he made the personal decision to send uh, you know, the, the FBI and the DOJ agents into Mar-a-Lago. That being said, there is reporting that indicates that, oh, nobody in the administration knew this, that nobody knew this was happening. I found that incredibly difficult to believe, seeing as the magnitude of this decision uh, very clearly resonates through the rest of the White House, right? There are implications if, if the rest of the White House did know this. Of course, they're going to say that, you know, the White House was unaware that this was happening. That being said as well, does track into larger questions about the, the continued ongoing investigations into the former president. The Heritage Foundation actually released uh, a press release the other day saying that we were going to start investigating. We were probably going to make uh, actions against uh, the archivist. So the National Archives has been behind a lot of this uh, initial push into the president to try to get these files back. And so we're not sure if there was some untoward behavior there, but we're looking into that as an organization. So, Annie, I, I very highly encourage your listeners to keep uh, abreast of what's going on at the Heritage Foundation, because we are very strongly pushing to find out the truth behind these allegations and the truth behind these investigations. And then they'll find the articles up on the Daily Signal. You gotta follow through. Absolutely, <laughs> but up, boom. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What I found very, very interesting. One day after Trump's raid, Representative Scott Perry had his phone seized by the FBI. Now, this is unprecedented too. I mean, here you have a sitting member of Congress and the FBI, without a subpoena, without a search warrant, just demanding he turns the phone over to them. This is crazy. Right. Again, th- this, is, this is the sort of irony, too, that I continue to hear from uh, the members of this administration, the constantly accu- accusing the former president 
of fomenting authoritarian behavior or a dictatorship or their favorite catchword, fascist, right? They called, the Donald, they called Donald Trump a fascist over and over and over again. And his MAGA crew, they would do all these things. But they engaged in the exact same behavior, and it's actually provable. This is not what Americans do. We don't send the Department of Justice, this sort of arm of the state, after our political opposition. You go through the process. You use the law. So one of the things that we've been talking to at the Heritage Foundation is what could have the other alternative to been to get these types of documents? Well, you, you issue a subpoena. You don't necessarily say we're taking the stuff. The same thing with the, with the congressman, right, with the senator. The idea that you're going to just say give us this information or give us this stuff is so radically different than how the country is supposed to function that it really does bring into question whether or not the Biden administration is dedicated to the rule of law in America. You know, it, it, what I'd love to know is uh, Eric Trump was on Hannity the other day, and he said the cameras were not turned off. The security refused to turn the cameras off. I'm hoping they've got backup of all the video and I'd love to see what was going on and what these agents were doing in that house, in his, in his resort, for nine solid hours. Now, a search warrant usually is narrowly defined what you can and cannot take, what you are looking for, specifically what you're looking for. And if it was for those boxes that were in that storage room that was locked by, at their request, was locked, and the attorney all had to do was just say, all right, here's the key, I'll unlock the door and take whatever you want. But that's it's it's I want to see what's on those tapes and what they did. I, I think that eventually we will start to see a lot of these things. And again, to to that point, the president himself, the former president, Donald Trump, has said that he will allow and he's not going to try and block the records and the warrants from coming out, because I think he recognizes that this is just as silly and, and ridiculous as the American people do. Merrick Garland tried to you know, bait him into saying something like, oh, you know, well, if the president doesn't say anything, we're just going to release these warrants. Well, good. The American people should have access to these warrants and to these information because we should be able to understand what in God's name they were thinking when they announced this raid and they approved of this raid, because this is unprecedented behavior. This is banana republic style uh, thuggery and, and goon tactics, and it should not be tolerated in a, in a free and open society like America is. If the Biden administration wants to go down this path, it's a really, really bad path to go down. Yeah. Now, what I love is that you find more people you know, outraged over what's happened, and got to love them. Uh, the country singer John Rich, <laughs> he said, you know, this is a gift that keeps on giving. We'll see you in November. Uh, do you think this is going to be enough to actually turn the tide of the 2022 elections and just make it a firm red tidal wave? Well, I mean, it's an excellent question to, to see how Americans respond to these types of things. I would hope that Americans, when they, when they make those types of decisions, when they start to think about what they want out of this country, if they look and see what both parties represent, if they look and see what has been the behavior behind these parties, if we look at the failed policies of the Biden administration, taking away natural energy, basically making things more expensive, uh, encouraging Americans to, you know, give up their guns willingly or wink, wink, we're going to take them for you. All of those things stacked on top of each other. It is clear that the 
Biden administration is going in an autocratic and authoritarian direction. And I think Americans are becoming aware of that. If we look at the polling data, it seems to suggest that Democrats are losing a lot of ground with the middle American that is going to really be in, essential in, in them maintaining power. So I can't, again, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a mystic, I'm not a seer, I'm not a prophet. I won't be able to say with any certainty whether or not something like that will affect uh, November. But I do think that if you, if you sort of look and see what the Democrats have offered and in their time in power, it's not a good look. Yeah, because um, you write a great article about the GOP lawmakers saying they vow a probe of, uh, of the FBI raid, but they should also be probing the uh, January 6th investigation and those subpoenas and the people that were arrested, like Peter Navarro, uh, that were arrested for no absolute reason. Uh, they should go beyond that and just start tearing everything apart. Correct. And I, I think that one of the things, too, that was so wonderful when I, I was able to talk to all those lawmakers is I did get a sense that there was a very real, uh, I would say, vindicated anger at how the administration has been weaponizing and politicizing an organization like the Department of Justice to go after its enemies. We actually did see this back in the Obama administration. The Daily Signal is writing a piece right now on how the IRS, which is supposedly supposed to be this neutral political body that deals with taxes, was weaponized against a majority of conservative organizations to go after their tax-exempt statuses. So this is just a continuation of the Obama years of we're going to use the government to, as a weapon, as a tool to fight back against our enemies, as opposed to a body that's supposed to just, uh, justly kind of rule over and, and give uh, equal credence to both sides of the aisle. If you have a government that's only going to positively impact one side of the aisle, that's not a government, that's a tyranny. And so, again, I think what Americans should be paying attention to here in all of these circumstances, whether it's the January 6th so Childs, whether it's the raid on Mar-a-Lago, or whether it's likely the, the mass amount of audits we'll start to see for conservative organizations upcoming as a result of this massive increase uh, in the IRS workforce, just recognize again there is a party that is explicitly saying their goal with the government when it is to make it bigger and then to target you based on your political belief. Well, I have to say that I knew some of those people that the IRS went after because when we formed our Tea Party back in 2009, um, friends of mine up in Myrtle Beach and other areas were the ones that ended up testifying before Congress, Joe Dugan, Diane Hardy. Joe has passed away since then. And when I had my conversations with them, it's like, I'm not going to go for uh, incorporating, not becoming a 501c3, because then we become on the, the radar of the IRS. And since 2009, I have kept us as a loose association of friends and never incorporated. And I saw what the, the IRS was doing. I don't know if you remember about that same time uh, in 2012, there's a gentleman in um, – California, that whenever a dollar bill came before him in his store, he would stamp it with Tim Geit over Tim Geithner's name, tax cheat. And the IRS went after him by auditing him. And I'm saying, you know, they're going to use the government to take this guy down. The simplest thing is he just defaced the currency. That's a felony. You cannot deface any government document, and currency is a government document. But they went after him with the IRS. And I guess that was a message to everyone else, you know, sit down and shut up. Exactly. And I, again, that was sort of the message that we got. And I, I highly encourage your listeners to get uh, ready for this piece. It's 
quite a it's quite a read. But the idea being that when the government then uses its massive power, again, the government has grown so much larger than the founders intended. It's gotten to the point where it's this monster that can just ruin your life. But when the IRS and the government as a whole begin to target you specifically on your speech based on what you say, based on what you believe, that is a massive problem. And the fact that we are going to see that happen again, because, I mean, the, the administration has made zero, zero, uh, not tried to hide the fact that it's going to do this and has increased the amount of IRS auditors that are going to be available. Uh, it should make everybody very, very nervous uh, because, yeah, if, if you thought Obama back in 2008, 2012 was an issue, yeah, you haven't seen anything yet. No, you haven't. And with 87,000, they're going to have – let me see if I can get this correctly. They're going to have more uh, people in their organization, the IRS, than the Pentagon, the State Department, the FBI, the Border Patrol combined. And these mm-hmm. 87,000 agents, well, no, though, they, they call them clerks, are going to be armed with AR-15 style firearms. Oh, we're not allowed to own AR-15s, but the government IRS agents would be able to. I'm so glad that you brought up that the the arming thing too, because it was very funny. Because the IRS posted that uh, job listing and said that you know you'd have to be armed in this job listing. It was immediately taken under uh, into the sort of Twitterverse, and people were looking at it and saying, "Oh my God, this is horrific!" Uh, and they took it down. They very quickly took it down because they don't think you're paying attention. Is the thing here, right? If you're not paying attention and you're just going to accept that they they can do these things, then they have no reason to stop. But it's very important, Annie, for people like you and people like me and people like your listeners uh, to pay attention and to, to hold government accountable when it does these things. And whether that's in November, whether that's uh, you know, every day, whether that's when it, 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 years from now, it's so important that we continue to hold the government to account and say you're not going to just trample on our rights because you don't like that we're conservative. You know, it's it's scary because they're saying that you're, if you're earning less than four hundred thousand, you're not going to be one one of those that are audited. But when you look at statistically, um, if you are a small business owner, you may not be earning four hundred thousand, uh, but small business owners are more are targeted more than anyone else. Uh, if you're very very wealthy, you have less chance. But Joe Blow, like you and I, have a better chance of being audited than say George Soros. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a that's a, a great point, Annie. Because again, when you think of an audit, at least the government, the way it will try and uh, message an audit is that it's you know this very slow process, but we get it done, and we try to help you as much as possible. But one of the things that we've learned when we actually talk to people who have experienced this, we we spoke with a a member of a a local Tea Party, much like the one that you've uh, been talking about, Annie, is that it was years, and it was so many different man hours, so many lawyers had to come in, so many people had to be dealing with this thing. It is a nightmare. And the average citizen like you and I just doesn't have that time, doesn't have that money, doesn't have the resources to be able to fight the government. So again, it is really dangerous. The numbers that we're hearing out of the uh, out of this bill that are going to increase the amount of IRS agents are very scary. The fact that they've lied and have been called out on their lie that it's going to majorly affect or the majority of the people that are going to be audited uh, are earning more than four hundred thousand dollars, which is just not true. You can you can look at the data that they provide themselves. Uh, it's going to be mostly lower class and middle class folks. So again, hold them accountable. 
make sure they just aren't able to do this and, and get away with it. You have to make sure that there are consequences for them trampling on your rights and make sure that they just can't do it anymore. Now, you just did an interview recently, um, just last week, with the American First Legal Foundation. I'm not even going to try to pronounce John's last name. I'm not even <laughs> going to try. Honestly. But lo and behold, there seems to be collusion, and he speaks specifically about the CDC uh, and big tech during the pandemic, but there is a collusion between this swamp government and big tech. A perfect example is I got banned from YouTube recently. I mean, they took me down, Mm -hmm. wouldn't let me get open back up, so I had to open a separate account that they don't know about, so we won't tell them about that. (laughs) I'll keep my my, my lips are sealed. (laughs) But there is collusion through various government agencies and big tech as well as the media. It always amazes me. I mean, used to crack up. You would see the clips that people would put together of CNN, MSNBC, and all the other alphabet soup left-leaning media with the same exact talking points, word for word. No, there's no collusion right. here. Nothing to seek, folks. Right, right. And actually, we've, Annie, we've, we've learned something even more scary. So Alex Berenson, who used to work for the New York Times, uh, was very vocally anti-mandate and anti-mask mandate, vaccine mandate during the pandemic. Uh, and we actually obtained documentation. He, he was able to obtain this during a lawsuit that indicates that Twitter employees were told by representatives of the White House to ban him from the platform. They were saying, why hasn't he been banned yet? He's been purveying this quote-unquote misinformation. We need to get him off the platform. So, yes, the America First Policy Institute by John Zadrozny, nailed it, uh, has, <laughs> has, has some very uncomfortable implications. Because it basically shows that while the government is saying, oh, these are natural occurrences that big tech is starting to do, which I don't doubt that some of these bannings are happening like yours are just because they don't like what you're saying, right? I I don't doubt that that's what's happening here. But there are also instances where the government itself is stepping in and saying, you need to get rid of this person because they're problematic. They're going against the party line. They need to be punished, right? So when these documents show that the CDC was encouraging people in the big tech sphere to remove content they didn't like that was going against CDC guidelines, or when Alex Berenson can say, I have documentation that shows that a a high-level official in the Biden administration was telling Twitter people to get me off the site, that is terrifying because now we are actually stepping into authoritarianism and fascism because they're saying the First Amendment doesn't apply. The government is now compelling a private company to remove people from its site because it doesn't like what they're saying. That is fascism at its finest. And it's happening left and right. Um, uh, Reddit had banned me uh, a couple of years ago. I was like, oh, well, who cares about Reddit? Uh, Someone uh, actually tried to clone my account on Instagram. Uh, I got them kicked off, but uh, I haven't been on Instagram anyway. Uh, YouTube taking me down. I've had uh, Facebook take down a couple of posts every now and then. But, yeah, it, it is anything that is what they deem misinformation. And you could be having a parody. You could be sarcastic uh, or, you know, whatever. But they are the speech uh, censorship. No, no, no. It's free speech for me but not for thee. 
Right. And I, I also want to just sort of say, notice something that you said there, too, where it's like, oh, well, you could be making a parody or you could be saying that was, you know, something sarcastically. But it really shouldn't matter. Why do, why do Americans lose their First Amendment rights when they log into a computer, right? Your First Amendment rights don't apply on Twitter because the government doesn't like that. So you could say something that was just blatantly untrue, but that's your right as an American. Sometimes you're able to say things that just aren't factually true. You can say these things, and the government can't step in and say, well, actually, that's inaccurate. Because the government, on a regular basis, says things that aren't true. They will frequently lie. And I don't say that the government needs to be shut down by, well, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the government currently, but, you know, the idea being that your speech rights shouldn't end because the government doesn't like what you say, regardless of whether it's parody, regardless of whether it's sarcasm, or regardless of whether it's not true. You have those rights online, and the government shouldn't have the ability to take those away. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I will defend your right to say anything as stupid as it is to the death. Because it is your First Amendment right. I may not agree with you, and I may fight you for it, but uh, I will defend your right to be as stupid as you want. (laughs) Exactly. We can all be stupid online. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, a lot are. A lot are. We're down to our last few minutes here, and I'm having so much fun. I wish we had you like for a full hour. There's so much more to talk about, and I encourage people to go over to Heritage Foundation, click on the Daily Signal, and to read the articles. I'm looking forward for you uh, delving into the other item we were talking about earlier, because uh, you also talk about the left uh, injecting oh, – oh, figure this one – the left injecting politics into Hollywood, movies and TV. Now, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen at no. all, no. Never, never. never. So one of the things that I like to talk about, too, is culture, because I do believe that culture is what makes us who we are. We're not just a group of borders. We're not just a group of states. We are an American culture. And as much as we are loath to say it, Hollywood is a big of how we see ourselves. When we watch these movies, we start to say, well, that's an American film. But if you look at what Hollywood is producing nowadays, it's all woke nonsense. And in some ways, it's actually providing ammunition for really radical racial ideas that shouldn't exist. So I wrote a piece about a movie that's coming out called The Woman King. And The Woman King is a movie that's set in this kingdom called the Kingdom of Dahomey in Africa. And the the way that the movie is trying to set this kingdom up is that they're a slave uh, fighting revolutionary state that's really interested in getting the Europeans out and the white men are bad and it's all terrible. In reality, this kingdom was responsible for the slave trade and sending slaves to Europe and to America. They were the exact type of people that the modern left says they hate. But the very fact that they're black women that star in this movie means that the identity group wins out, and therefore they're more obsessed with propping up a lie about black women being perfect than they are about telling the actual story. They're going to paint white men and white people in general as bad, and they're going to prop up these black people who in reality were slavers as good. This is what Hollywood is up to nowadays. They're not interested in telling compelling stories. They're not interested in telling stories that make you feel good about the country you're in. They're more interested in propping up stories that are based on lies that sow division and racism in the country because that's what their twisted little minds believe. Oh, but but they're they're the ones that know better than us, right? They know far better than us. You know, we're we're right wingers, so we have to be homophobic, we have to be racist, we have to be Nazis. Uh, it's the Herman Cain thing. You know, uh, it, they always sin. 
if you start there, they switch the subject, they ignore the fact, and the next thing they do is name call. That's their their argument with us. But no, no, we're, we're all those bad things. We're terrible people. Didn't you know that? Exactly. I mean, we should just feel terrible about being uh, conservative, believing in God, believing in community. We should all just move to the cities and have 36 cats and just drink a bunch of macchiatos every day. The fact that they want to push that type of lifestyle on people that are not wanting to do that and then get angry with us when we want to retreat back into our, civil, into our communities and to uh, go to church on Sunday and do all these things that make us happy, that make them uncomfortable, it really shows just how insecure they are with how they feel because they know that their lives in the cities are miserable. They're not happy. They don't have the sense of community. They don't have a belief in God, for one thing, and it just makes them upset. So, again, I think when, when push comes to shove, we're happier on the right. We have so much more to live for. We have so many more things that we can be content about, and they're just jealous and miserable. Hey, just leave my cats alone. <laughs> I got five. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against cats. Nothing against cats. <laughs> Well, it has been a pleasure having you on, Doug, and I hope that you do return uh, because Tom sends me someone every week. And you got to hear who I got next week. I got next week Paul Manafort, Adam Adrzejewski oh, uh, from Open the Books, A.J. Rice from Public uh, PR, Mark Tapscott from the Ep- Epic Times, and one of you guys from Heritage next week. So Very we're cool. going to rock and roll. Yes. I think that's so a I great want- show. And yeah. Well, I welcome you back anytime. Just tell, tap Tom on the shoulder and say, send me back. I like working with that girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Doug, and enjoy your weekend. Have All a right? great day. Check out the uh, Daily Signal over at Heritage Foundation. they got great articles over there. We're down to our last few seconds, so we got no closing song today. So I want to wish everyone a good weekend. Be healthy, happy, and if you're in my area, look for the sun- thunderstorms coming in the southeast. So, Kurt, that's oh, what man. we got for today. Yeah, and a great so, show. Until so. then, I say good night. And God bless. Thank you for everyone for joining us. Until next time. All right.